Well, dear listener, this is an episode that I've been threatening to do for a few weeks now, and it's a book review. I'll be going through a book called Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do by Michael J. Sandel. And uh, I really like the book. It's got lots of moral quandaries, and it provides a good framework in terms of analysing moral quandaries, identifying approaches to solving them, and coming up with an alternative sort of theory of morality, if you like, at the end, which is a pretty uh, uh, vague theory, I'll give it that, and it's got a lot of vibe to it, but in any event, uh, I think it's a worthwhile exercise. But before I do, uh, and before I get on to the book, this really is a good follow-on to an episode that we did about a year and a half ago, episode 238 where I sat down with Peter and uh, the 12th man and Hugh Harris and we had a discussion on the origins of our morals. And what I'm going to do, dear listener, is rather than get you to scroll through the uh, old episodes and find it, I'm actually going to um, insert now uh, an hour and 27 minutes of episode 238. Now, if you've heard it recently or you don't want to hear it again, then all you need to do is look at your podcast app and look at the time note and fast forward now an hour and 27 minutes and 14 seconds and you'll end up back to me giving you new commentary on this book. But I'm going to insert now that um, uh, that episode as a good background to the origin of our morals and then we'll continue with um, this book. Anyway, dear listener, we're going to take you through morality and uh, one of the reasons why we're doing that is I often hear through podcasts and through the media where people talk about the Judeo-Christian ethic and how it's lucky we've got it because it's basically what's created the civilization that we have and that we'd be, essentially there'd be raping and pillaging going on and uncontrolled slaughter um, of the masses if it wasn't there. So aren't we lucky for the Judeo-Christian ethic? And so, um, and this is the idea that when we talk about Judeo-Christian ethic, what do you understand that to be, 12th man? I wasn't expecting this. Mm. Uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic, oh, what do I understand to be the essence of the Judeo-Christian ethic? Mm. Um, love thy neighbour... You know, don't offend God, yep. go to church every right. week. Sort of stuff you get from the Bible, really? Stuff you the, get from the, the Old Bible, Testament, yeah. the New Testament, yeah. the Old Testament being the Judeo component mm. and the Christian being the New Testament. Yeah. Um, so it's this idea that through the Bible, mm. Old and New Testament, we've picked up moral guidance that's enabled us to have the flourishing <clears throat> civilization that we have today. Yeah. But the actual term Judeo-Christian... Is really only a recent invention. It's only something that cropped up in America, sort of post-war, post-Second World War. Seriously? And really only appeared in Australia in sort of late 70s, something like that. So it's a term that's... Post-Second World War? Yeah, mm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So um, Brian Morris in his book, Sacred mm. to Secular, found a little bit in there, and basically the parliamentary library um, had no reference to it until 1974. <laughs> so... so Here's the theory, that basically when they talked in America about the Judeo-Christian ethic 
they're really wanting to say Christian. Yep. Mm. But they added Judeo as a bit of an ant, as a bit of sort of an anti-Semitism um, to avoid. As an apology for the anti-Semitism yeah. that gave rise Post-Second to... Post-Second World War, Second World. yep, sort yep. of inclusive of Jewish people mm. uh, was the reason for putting the Judeo in. But in more recent times, Judeo-Christian is perhaps a little more exclusive because it really means not that Islamic kind of... Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not all the Abrahamic religions. That's mm. right. So, so originally Judeo-Christian, well, let's include the Jews and yeah. now it more or less means... But let's not include the Muslims. I, is you know one way of looking at it. Well, I think that's true because the sort of people who are normally raving about the Judeo-Christian ethic are certainly not uh, brown people of colour. It's going to be white Christians who are talking about it. So, mm-hmm. okay. So, um, oh, and one other reason I want to talk about it is somebody like um, Jordan Peterson talks about it. So, for all the Jordan, do we have any Jordan Peterson fans in the room at the moment? Hugh. I wouldn't say fan, but I think that he has some interesting comments on things. I find his views interesting and challenging, but I don't find uh, probably the more famous views that he has particularly interesting. Do you find his... The way he explains his views persuasive? I, I just find him really hard to listen to, I have to say. I think he sounds a little bit like he's got a chip on his shoulder with a lot of the times when he's explaining something. Um, uh, I've seen some of his YouTube lectures on certain topics and he's very interesting. I think he's very interesting about some of his um, the books that he's written, particularly about the uh, the hero as a the archetype of the hero as such a foundational part of our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, he's big on stories and myths becoming part of myths. our culture yeah. and driving our ethics. Yeah. So he would say to atheists, all right, you may not think you are a Christian, but actually you are because you've absorbed the myths and stories uh, mm. of Christianity and you are leading a lifestyle because of that. So you're actually, you've absorbed it subconsciously or not. So that's think, part of his argument. Yeah, a little bit of truth in that too. Yeah. I think, there's, yeah. I think mm. there is some truth in that, but there's also, mm. or the return point, some mm. truth in the fact that most Christians don't believe in the same thing mm. and modern Christians don't believe in the same things that Christians believed in 2,000 years ago. Yeah. And, for instance, I had a recent debate with a very prominent Christian where we clarified that their idea of hell is not anywhere near the traditional idea of hell. In fact, their idea of hell has no visual representation. They don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. They just know that they don't want to say it's fire and brimstone and hellfire because clearly that's immoral in um, in the way we understand morality these days. Mm. So I don't think I think there's a bit of truth to both ways. So the Judeo-Christian ethic has in fact changed and adapted to you know modern standards. Mm. I think it has. I must say I always take the term to be a reference to Western civilization as yes. opposed to Eastern, and yes. and then I get confused as to where the Orthodox Christians fit in. Is that they're sort of they get a bit ignored there, but um, but. I, I take Judeo-Christian to be this reference to Western civilization, mm, yeah, as opposed to Eastern, and yes, and but I don't know if it started off in that meaning that, but that's mm. how I sort of take it now. Yeah, of course. The other thing is, if uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic is plagiarized um, ideas from before, then 
it's wrong to say that we're really following a Judeo-Christian ethic. We're really following whatever it is that it's plagiarised from. Yes. So yes, that's such as the golden rule. Exactly, for, that'd be the classic one, for example. So yeah. um, the, the golden rule: do unto others as did as you, you would have them do unto you. Yeah. Did you dig out the origin of the golden rule, Trevor? Um, basically, that it's appeared in a number of places independently. So I Confucius, I didn't mm. notice a. That in the you know the Greek um, philosophy that we were reading in that book, there is a, this idea that uh, the concept of reciprocity has appeared in every society, every human society. Every society. Mm. There you go. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Although maybe not expressed in the same words, yep. um, uh, evangelical Christians would argue that Confucius's version of the uh, golden rule is actually called is the silver rule because he, he expressed it in a slightly different way, in in a kind of negative way instead of a positive way. Like don't let people do something that would that you wouldn't like them to have done to you. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Whereas basically it's just the concept of re- reciprocity. Mm. Uh, Ken and Malik in his book said that. So that we'll be quoting a few from a few books. So uh, the quest for a moral compass by Ken and Malik. And he said in his book that the golden rule has a long history, an idea hinted at in Babylonian and Egyptian religious codes before fully flowering in Greek and Judaic writing and independently in Buddhism and Confucianism too. Mm. So it's an idea that's um, been around a long time and and I'm going to argue a bit later on that it's part of our evolution. So it goes back to the very beginning. So we'll oh get to goodness, that. Oh, my goodness, we might actually agree on something tonight. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> so, uh, so I guess, uh, did the Jews or the Christians invent a new moral code or did they plagiarise existing moral codes? Um, so let's look at what moral codes were around before... Christianity and at the time of Judaism. So in Ken and Malik's book, he starts with Greek mythology. And really in um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, we've got gods, but they're quite uh, what he calls capricious gods, and they're very human, these gods. They are jealous and angry and conniving and very human in their in their dealings with people. But um, people also in that time... There's sort of a combination where they're fated to their circumstances which are beyond their control and even to some extent their emotions that they have are fated to them, that uh, they were locked so into circumstances. Determined by their social roles. Yes, they? indeed. Mm. A lot of the time the responses that these characters made in certain situations were responses that they had to make. They kind yeah. of were locked in through, you're right, their social position meant, well, in this position, I must do this. Or I'm an angry man, I'm always angry and I'm fated to be angry and therefore yeah. I'm, or I'm jealous and I will be respond in this sort of manner. So, um, uh, so personal choice and responsibility is limited. Um, but um, and w- but the sort Would of- you say the gods were reflections of aspects of... Human, mm. what would you say? Existence, human life, and again, they were know, just like a group of humans so, sitting so, around in the so clouds. So, a warrior god would act like a warrior. Yes, and, and a king god would act like a king, and etc. And they sit around and quarrelled and loved amongst each other as much as a, mm. a group of humans yeah. would. So that was the sort of uh, the gods that uh, Greek mythology was was pulling up. 
Then, uh, so that's around the sort of 8th century BCE. And around the 6th century, uh, we start to get philosophy emerging. And um, what constituted a virtuous act or a good life was not uh, intuitively grasped through myth, but was explicitly established through rational argument. So at about this time, people, people figured out we can work shit out, like Pythagoras mm. with his yeah. mm. right-angle triangle and the hypotenuse and the square equal, and people thought, bloody, you know, we can actually start working things out. Maybe we can work out this virtue and living sort of stuff sort of evolved at that time with the, with the Greeks. So, um, Paul, any favourites amongst Socrates, Plato or Aristotle? Ooh, that's a, that's a big ask. Mm. No, I, I don't have any particular favourites, but right. uh, I, I was just. So we start with Socrates. Yeah, Socrates. Right. So Socrates' idea was um, that it was about, you know, it was about the examined life, wasn't it, and determining mm. uh, what made you happy in life, wasn't it? Uh, yes, he, he said you should examine life. Um, uh, isn't that what he said when he was um, convicted um, to be um, killed because of his um, uh, supposed heresy and uh, disrupting um, society that he said that he won't recant on his beliefs because the unexamined life is not worth living? Yes, uh, and uh, he was about how people could... um care for their souls by acquiring virtues. But the thing I like about Socrates, and uh, Peter, I think you'll appreciate this about mm. Socrates, was the Socratic method. Yes. Yes. So, Which we, we suffered at law school. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, excellent training. <laughs> so, and it, dear listener, if you're a regular on this podcast, I, I like to think that at different times I've subjected you, Paul, to the Socratic oh. method. Because you'll we'll come out with... More than once. Yeah, we'll come All out with... Um, <laughs> with uh, a statement about whether a shopkeeper should sell cakes to um, gay couples or something like that. And and what I try and do in that case is say, well, let's look at some similar situations and whether you agree to the same thing. So in a slightly different circumstance, what do you say? And if you change your mind, uh, really because the facts change but the underlying principles haven't. And it's about exposing inconsistencies <laughs> in thinking and trying to get to the actual general principle that's at play. So, um, so it's a really useful thing to be able to do is to sort of uh, raise up a whole bunch of alternatives and say, do you still think the same way about this? Now, if we change the facts slightly, do you still think the same way about this? So... Um, you know, and you can use it in all sorts of things. Like I'm, as you would know, Hugh, forever railing about Americans' intervention in other countries around the world. Yes. And I quite often say, well, how would the Americans feel if some other country was doing the exact same thing to them? They wouldn't be happy, would they? Like, no. And if your only answer is that the reason it's okay is because it's us and not them, then that's not a good reason. You have to have a general <laughs> underlying principle that can apply universally. And when you've got that, you've got something worthwhile but if it's if it's less than that it's it's worth nothing so that's the sort of uh socratic uh, method and uh so that was one of the great things he did uh, mm. with socrates socrates and the euthyphro dilemma anyone familiar with the euthyphro dilemma yes. so that is that um <clears throat> is um what is good because god says it is good which is arbitrary 
Mm. Um, or is what is good good because it is good? Yeah. And so, um, you know, how can you how can you say what is the good? Yeah. So Socrates was being charged with impiety and he was running around sort of questioning people about, well, what is godly and what's good? And uh, Euthyphro was this character who was a prosecutor who had prosecuted his own father for killing a slave. I think he'd beaten the slave, left him in a gutter and the slave had died or something and this prosecutor was prosecuting his own father for killing the slave. Anyway, so... Socrates thought, well, this Euthyphro is a good guy to talk to and um, find out about godliness. And, yeah, so he said to him, well, what's good? And he said, well, it's good if God says it's good. But uh, Socrates says, well, if he just says it's good, surely he can't make something good if it's already bad. Like if it's murder, for example, just by God saying it's good, Mm. can't make it good. And Euthyphro said, well... um, it's good and and if God identifies it as good. Mm. And then uh, Socrates says, so that means that good must exist independently of the gods. So it must be sitting there as good and the gods then identify it as being good and it's independent and can exist and crop up uh, separate to the gods. So what's the point of the gods in that case? So, so do you agree that it's arbitrary that if just because God says something, it's good, mm, that's, that it's good. So if God mm. said, um, you must murder your firstborn son or you must torture uh, civilians, God says that, that that is the good thing to do, that can be good, or is good something that has to be measured by a more objective manner than that? Well, Socrates was saying because of that example, it's clearly ridiculous to say that whatever a god says is good is good. You can't rely on that. And, of course, at those days, gods were known to be crazy, capricious guys sitting around making all sorts of funny decisions. It was, more, so they, it was they more credible that they would be yeah, arbitrary. Yeah, yeah, they, were, yeah. So they weren't regular. So he, um, so he established that um, morality itself um, was independent and perhaps there was an objective way of, of reaching what was good and deciding what was good. Um, and that's the main, uh, that's a big objection to divine, di- divine command theory, mm. that mm. God dictates what is good and mm. God dictates what subjective moral values. I think that's a killer argument against that. Mm. Plato, I find it hard to get a grip on Plato. He, just, mm. he seems to be, among some people, like the king of these mm. early philosophers, but it's hard to find something really concrete about Plato. Well, I think they often draw a line, you know, there's post-Platonic and pre-Platonic and this sort of... That, Plato is this line people draw through the history, and uh, but I don't know why. Yeah, but don't you think? I think it's interesting that Plato basically wrote down everything so- Socrates supposedly said. Yes, and Plato wrote all of his philosophy in plays and in dialogues between people. So you don't know for a start that is that what Socrates said, or is that what he elaborated on and made a good story mm. out of? Indeed, it's a bit like our Bible um, thing we were talking about. How much of this was actually the word of this person, and how much was made up by a subsequent scribe? So yeah, probably that's right. a lot. Yeah, and and sort of Plato does um, paint a very attractive picture of Socrates. So you might gild the lily a little bit. Mm. Mm. So do you see Plato as a direct sort of? 
disciple of Socrates in it? Because his well, ideas were a little bit divergent. Well, he was, yeah, he yeah. was taught among, yeah. by, and a couple of others were taught yeah, by Socrates. And, yeah, Socrates and then Plato. Because Socrates apparently didn't Aristotle. write anything down, did he? He didn't write anything, yeah. and he was more like. Uh, uh, he was married, but he didn't have any particular occupation, and he used to stand in the the public square and debate people, and yep. basically be a bit of a nuisance. <laughs> yes, yeah. The we get to where we get to the Christianity point, but mm. isn't Plato the point where we get this idea of this spark of virtue in everybody and surrounded by the material world? Certainly, there was a character called Thrasymachus who advocated naked self-interest because he said the ruling class are just screwing everybody uh, when they tell you to behave yourself. Go out there and do whatever you like. Mm-hmm. And Plato said, no, 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 naked self-interest is bad for you and is unhealthy for you. Oh. So you shouldn't conduct yourself with just naked self-interest. So... Um, he didn't really explain why much more beyond than it's unhealthy to do that. He didn't really come up with great moral reasoning for it, but uh, that was part of his... He, he said it was a, a form of um, mental disease in a yes. sense, didn't he? Yeah, an unhealthiness. An unhealthy yes. mind. You won't be happy if you do that. No. Yeah, it was kind of his reasoning. But at least it was one of these things of... Um, don't be so self-interested. Well, it makes a lot of sense, yeah. And even he, today... He gave, he gave as many reasons as Jesus did. Yeah, so. no, but, but even today, I mean, you can have, um, you know, uh, when matters go to court and things like that, you can talk about judges will recognise legitimate self-interest, but not just yeah. self-interest. I mean, self-interest might be, uh, I get to charge twice for everything I deliver and I, I, I'm not going to pay for anything else I acquire. Yeah. That's my self-interest. But no, 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 no. Legitimate self-interest is, well, you know, I, I, you've acquired something, you should pay for it, and, mm. and, and you shouldn't pay anything more than what you bargained for and things mm-hmm. like that. So, so you're entitled to pursue your self-interest, but it's still got to be legitimate. Yes. Judges, judges would say that today, and mm. I think that's consistent. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the other thing he was famous for, just with finishing off with Plato, was the uh, hierarchy of preferred governments. So his idea of the uh, best form of government was an aristocracy. Oh, Second okay. was a military dictatorship. <laughs> yes. okay. Third was an oligarchy. Oh, great. And then there was a democracy, which only ranked above tyranny. Oh, so is, is this in really? the Republic? Is this in the yeah, I Republic? I think so. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, that's, that's fantastic. Because he had this view that um, common people are driven by base desires. Um, soldiers have a yearning for honour and rulers have a, uh, their purpose is to look for reason. So... He had a very sort of a class segregation about. Was he heavily interest? He was heavily influenced by Sparta. I think right. I recall something like that the, yes. the Spartan culture or the, the, their success that it had there, and that was a military style. Yeah, uh, society. Yeah, Sparta was um, what Nazi Germany aspired to be. <laughs> <laughs> is, what, is what some people describe it as. Oh, describe God. it as. So it was a very authoritarian. But uh, okay, so the the Greek, the Athenians were into this, were developing this idea of, look, all of these philosophers, uh, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, were definitely about what you have to do is to be for the benefit of the polis, which is the city-state sort of thing. Your your actions must be favourable for our city. Um, but they were certainly freer than the uh, Spartans because the Spartans were very rigid in your commitment to Sparta and your roles were extremely rich in there, rich, uh, rigid and there wasn't uh, scope for any personal liberties in the Spartan world. So, in, And that sort of 
comes to the nub of part of our philosophy discussion is how much are you committed to the group and the community and how much free will to do your own individual libertarian thing? Mm. Uh, and and does, does free will actually exist? Not this episode here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is a relevant question, though. Yes. At the base of it all. It, indeed it is. That so, comes a bit later, actually, doesn't yeah. it, in the um, Judeo-Christian tradition, is this idea of free will, isn't it? Um, More than the Greek one? I think it's essential to it. Without it, there is, there's really no punishment or reward if there's no real free will. Yeah. Well, we digress. Yeah, I mean, if God knows everything you're going to do anyway, why bother running this experiment? Like, because well, you know, is, yeah, yeah. So you really had no free will because He knew you were going to do that anyway, or maybe He knew you were going to exercise your free will in such a way. But um, why well, conduct the experiment if He knows the results already? That's true. Because He's a sadist. But, yeah, but we've digressed, and we'll just finish off with uh, Aristotle and um, his uh, idea was a state of human flourishing um, that's worth seeking and basically if you have a if you conduct yourself virtuously then happiness will come as a byproduct of that and that's something I've read about in recent times when people talk about how can you be happy and the answer is you shouldn't be pursuing happiness as such if you're conducting life in a meaningful way then happiness is a byproduct of that and will come about. So um, so that was kind of Aristotle's view. And he also had this sort of acorn theory that uh, an acorn's purpose is to grow up and become an oak. So things have a purpose and they have a meaningful existence if they achieve their obvious purpose. So uh, that was uh, Aristotle. So just briefly... Uh, before we get on to the Christians, um, after those three main Greeks, we had one little period there of Stoics, Stoicism. Stoicism. Mm. Mm. Marcus uh, Aurelius. Uh, yeah. And um, this was the idea of sort of accepting your fate. Yes. And this is important for Christianity. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's an idea that, okay, you've got a, a terrible terminal illness that, um, medicine can't fix, well, don't whine about it. There's no point. Um, accept that and deal with it as you can, but kind of accepting whatever mm. uh, fate throws at you that you can't deal with, just accept it and and move on within that. Um, I like this line from Ken and Malik's book. Um, so this guy, Zeno, was a stoic, and uh, he was once flogging a slave, as you do, and uh, who had stolen some goods, and the slave said, but I was fated to steal. <laughs> and, uh, and Zeno said, yes, and to be beaten as well. <laughs> Very stoic response. <laughs> uh, so, Fate can be a bitch. Yeah, but that, that sort of stoic acceptance of the situation you're in uh, was important for Christianity down the track. Um, oh, very much so. Adopted that, yep. and also um, they kind of opened things up to the Christian idea because they really stopped talking about what's your role in terms of promoting the community and the polis. More a case of how do you feel about life and think about yourself inwardly, and that then opened up 
Christianity with people having a relationship with God and forgetting about the community as such or not having to think about promoting the, the city-state. So, um, so yeah, so that's the sort of lead-up to, uh, to the Bible period we get to. And when we get to... Uh, how do you pronounce it? The Tanakh by the Jews? Tanakh. Tanakh, mm. yeah. yeah. So what How's we've got... Hebrew? Oh, very weak. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so... Uh, what we've got there is a group of people who've um, uh, basically come up with this idea of a God who commands what you, what is right and what you need to do and don't you dare think about it because I've written it down on these here ten tablets and your job is just to do it and not to think about it. And um, th- that was the sort of movement in... Christianity and Judaism, which strikes me as not as a sort of a backward step from where we were. It's sort of comical, isn't it? Mm. And that that Moses also <clears throat> went up on top of the clouds or the mountain and and negotiated this with God for forty days and forty nights. Did he negotiate? I don't think he negotiated. Did he? Well, he was up there. What was he discussing for forty? He was like humanity's union rep well, well, up there discussing it with God. I, I, and I then he came was... down and smashed all the tablets and um, and then no, executed 3,000 people. <laughs> was that deliberate or an accident? Well, smash, the what do you mean he smashed the tablets? Oh, first time he smashed did, them. Oh, did he? Yeah, he had to go back up there's again. Two, there's two yeah. stories. Seriously? The first really? one he smashes. Yeah, he smashes he got them. upset because they were all misbehaving when he came back. He took so long. Ah. What, were they, what, what were they worshipping? What were they worshipping? The uh, oh. golden... golden. I'm, I'm not sure if that was the event involving the golden calf, but, yeah, no, he, the original tablets he had to smash because he got so pissed off with them. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, they had to go back up again and do it because again. they were uh, uh, practicing idolatry by, right. by okay. making idols. Okay, I hope he had a good story for God the yeah. second time. He okay, went but I don't know if he was negotiating, but it certainly took a long time. It was, but but it's a it's a covenant again. The, the, yeah. for, the, for the Jews, important they, they were making. Yahweh was making covenants with his people. It's a kind of so contract. It's an agreement. So it? so I suppose negotiation. Yeah, but but. These are all always covenants between Yahweh and his people. Yep. Yes. Yeah. I doubt many religious people would accept my union rep uh, example. Yeah. <laughs> Muhammad negotiated. I've well, told you it? that story yes. many times. So He negotiated. Yeah, the five prayers that, that Muslims say every day, initially God said it's 50. <laughs> he got and, him down to five. And, and Muhammad haggled. <laughs> 50 <laughs> would be a bit It's onerous, true. He it? came down... <laughs> From the lower, higher level to the lower level, and I think it was Abraham who said to him, you know, how many prayers did God tell you to get your people to say? And he said, 50. And he said, oh, prayers are weighty matter. Go back up and get it reduced. <laughs> Went back up, had it reduced to 45, came back down, same thing. He said, no, go back up again. And this repeated itself until it got down to five and then... Sorry, said, Abraham told. Yeah, I think it was Abraham. Yes, but Abraham was long dead. Yeah, but he's in heaven. I oh, know he's, he's going through the stages of he's heaven. He's in the stages of heaven. Uh, yeah, the stages of heaven. Yeah. So and Muhammad actually went up to heaven yes, to do this. Yes, on the night journey when he was on the half mule, on half the, donkey, uh, the and flying, climbed, flying climbed the golden ladder with Gabriel and passed through the levels of heaven. And when he came back with five, still Abraham said. Look, that's too many, and and Muhammad said, "Well, I feel too embarrassed to go back again." So that's that's <laughs> why that's why it's down to five. So he haggled. Which well, that's was, a, that, is, that is a good story. Yeah. So that's all there in the 
in a lot of Imagine how much praying that they, they, they would have been doing if it stuck with 50, right? Yeah. would <laughs> be just praying all day. Yeah. You'd never get anything done. Yeah. So, Apparently um, they, they seldom get much done anyway, even with the five. Yeah. So <laughs> the tablets then found their way into a chest called the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, the Ark, yes. Which found its way into the temple mm-hmm. that they built. Yep. And the temple was sacked. The first temple, yeah, yes. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the um, by the um, Assyrians Babylon- or by the uh, Babylonians, right? Babylonians, Babylonians. Assyrians yes. was the first conquest, yeah. wasn't uh, it? I think the Babylonians was the second conquest. Uh, okay, um, yeah. no? no, the Babylonians was the first time yeah. uh, that Solomon's was temple. So was Solomon's sacked. temple okay. was knocked over there, five eighty seven yeah. BCE. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess at that point the tablets were lost. Yes, I think so. Right. Yeah. Okay. But I think they might have been found again. That's yeah, Stephen Spielberg they found, found them. They might have found them again. So the Jews who lived there at that time, then basically a lot of them were exiled to Babylonia. Uh, yeah, whether, whether it was all of them, but yeah. some, 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 there yes. seems to be uh, accepted that there was uh, Jewish Jews in, in Babylon at the yes. time. Yep. who yep. went from that area. Yep. And, um, and then eventually... Babylon, Babylon fell, and yeah, the, the Jews, per, the Persians, uh, overran. Yes. Yep. So the Jews then returned, yes, and met up with the Jews who had stayed there. Correct. And the Jews who had been away and came back were far more rigid and uh, and tough on religion, well, rule than, bound, rule bound. Yes, they had their rules. And yes. the guys who had stayed yeah. there. So the guys who had stayed were doing things like mixed marriages, where Jews were marrying non-Jews and things. And the Jews who had been in Babylonia came back and said, what the hell are you doing? You can't do this. Uh, annulled the marriages. and um, It's often the case that people who are in a sort of a diaspora become more um, conservative than the people actually in the original communities. To preserve like, their culture, they, yes. they're stricter with like, rules. Like, like yeah. Yeah. So they found that with sort of Islamic groups in America and whatever. Indeed. Mm. Get into a little closed community and can be uh, a lot more sort of... Uh, Rigid in their thinking than the communities back home, so that yep. appears to be what's happened there. Imagine what Makes we'd sense. like. Mm. We'd Makes be sense. like yeah. if if we went to live in another country for a few few generations. Yes, we'd be all very strict about wearing songs and <laughs> studies, and <laughs> maybe we would be. Um, so, uh, what does Ken and Malik have to say about all that? Uh, that's kind of quoting what Ken and Malik was saying, really, about about that sort of idea that they. When the, the ones who went away were much more conservative than the ones who stayed behind. Mm. So, do you guys think it's a knockdown argument then against this sort of um, Judeo-Christian thing that we need to have these um, prescriptions for our morality? That what happened to the the Jews and all the civilizations and cultures before God delivered those Ten Commandments and all the other commandments, the three hundred and fifty or so that are in the Bible? If there was any need for him to do so, must we have had no morality prior to that? Well, that's the point, isn't it? Like there were some really marvellous civilizations that were occurring. People mm. were able to cooperate and build amazing civilizations mm. prior to uh, the Bible being mm. started by the Jews. And we've got... Uh, you know the whole of Asia, who never hears of yeah, that's right. the yeah, whole so Christ story. Well, it's a fair question because I, I think I was thinking about asking initially when you started yeah. off on the history. Were you suggesting that there's a point where there isn't a discussion of morality in writings, or that it, that it emerges at a particular point in time in our in in Western history? Is there a point? 
what I'm saying is that is that uh, the original um, writings of the Jews are really an assembly of the stories that they had gathered from mm. various tribes who coalesced and became that tribe in that area. And th- these are just historical stories that are gathered together in the same way that the Odyssey and the Iliad mm. were historical stories that were then gathered together um, yeah. in that way. When people start to get organised and can write things, they mm. they start to bring all that, those that, things That was in. something I took from the book, Trevor, where... Um Kenan Malik says the Iliad and the Odyssey gave ancient Greeks a sense of their history and a foundation stone of their culture and it established a moral framework for their lives. And the Jews sort of did the same thing with their old myths and stories, Mm. gave them a sense of nationhood in a sense. And one book that I've read, which is called The Bible Unearthed, do you guys know that one? No, I should read it. Very interesting. It's a meta-analysis of the archaeological work done in the so-called Holy Lands over, you know, the last couple of hundred years. And what they decided was that the, you know, the Jewish Bible, I don't know what you want to call it, but the collection of Jewish holy books Mm -hmm. was actually assembled by one particular king, uh, Josiah, I think his name was, in the 7th century BC, mm-hmm. and, and they claimed that he actually you know, assembled all the various stories and myths and books as a particular political project mm-hmm. to give the you know, disparate tribes that he was trying to pull together as a nation to give them a sense of their own history and their own identity and nationhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. According to Canon Malik, he says, the children of Israel who first arrived in Canaan were probably marginalised and dispossessed nomads who had roamed the Fertile Crescent. Mm. Over time, their patchwork of tales became stitched together into a single narrative of common history and shared gods. Um, and the original settlers had arrived in Canaan sometime in the first half of the second millennium BCE, and the various kingdom or the various tribes were united into a single kingdom by Saul. His successors were David and Solomon, who extended the borders. Um, Solomon built the temple that was eventually destroyed. So, yeah, in the same way that the Odyssey and the Iliad was a collection of stories <coughs> around about the same time, the Tanakh was a collection of stories, a group of tribes melted together. Mm. That's all it is. Yeah. Mm. Um, and they were basically... As you say, just mm. a disparate group of tribes. They mm. weren't a single self-identified uh, mm. group of Jewish people at that time. Mm. You know, so, that, was, that was a political creation. Yeah. So the other thing about Judaism was that um, basically other gods uh, basically had to be ferociously suppressed. Like really prior to that, there was a lot of polytheism around where Live and let live. Okay, you've got your God, I've got my God. Who you know? Yeah. Who really cares? But it sort of brought about an era where you are dead set wrong if you've got another God, and I'm not happy that you've got this other God. Mm. So that was part of the whole monotheism thing that came about with Judaism. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it was the sort of start of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, rather than thinking about morals and virtues and trying to work it out, we sort of regressed a step into. Well, here are the stories laid down, and you've got to follow what God tells you if you're going to make your way to heaven. And originally, 
heaven wasn't really a concept for the Jews. No. It was more you were going to get your reward on this earth. But once they started to get really badly persecuted, uh, they started to see that people were suffering and weren't getting their just <laughs> rewards. So they then started developing a concept of heaven as an afterlife because clearly some really good people were going through a terrible time and were not getting the so-called yeah. rewards that they were supposed to be Which getting. Which kind of so, undermines the whole yes. basis of the... Um, yeah. Yes. I, I don't think the, the Old Testament doesn't mention hell, but the New Testament is... Uh, is the, the, the kingdom is to be on earth. Yeah, it's, it's a, is that what you My understanding, understand, Jewish... It, the thought evolved over time, definitely evolved over time, but yes, no, for, there's no, there's no uh, hell, uh, there's no... Um, there's no devil in the Old Testament. There's certainly Satan. Satan's a slightly different character, uh, mm. but uh, but it, it certainly evolved. I think by, by by the time of Jesus, then there was this light and dark, good and evil sort of thing evolving. But but mm. Trevor, could I just go back to that point about the the the, the Jewish law? Though it comes back to this idea of a covenant, though that that I, I don't think it's God imposing your to do this. He didn't say, I'm taking control. This was a, I think it's always understood, this is a bargain. These are covenants. Moses, on behalf of his people, said, I've agreed with Yahweh, and, and, and if, you, if you abide by these laws, then God will protect you, and God is on your side. So it's, it's not this, so much so of this, a, this imposition is, as, a, a, as a covenant. Or, or, in other words, an enterprise bargaining agreement. If you'd like, yes. <laughs> well... The Jews were the chosen people of God. And well, sort of, well, he certainly chose them, but, yes. but, but there's always yeah. covenants being mm. made. And he said, I will be your God. You yes. will have no other God other than yes. me. But, but this is the deal. There's a deal being done yes. here. It's not a, okay, no, no, yeah. I've chosen you and you have no say in this it. This is the exchange. There's yes. constantly uh, throughout but, the Old Testament covenants being made. So, so, but is it a choice if, if, believe, if you believe what God says, then is there really a choice then? Oh, Oh, thanks God for the offer, but yeah, I think I might just reject that and just uh, you know, hard, hard to I'll say, suffer the consequences. I hard mean, to say, really? but when, you know, the reality is you're brought up yeah. in a religion, and yeah. that's just your religion, so yeah. you, you follow those rules. But but it, but it's not so much in position. The theory is that it's a it's still a covenant made yes. between Moses you, on behalf of his people with with Yahweh. How do you define yeah. covenant? Isn't yeah. it a sort of a, contract agreement? Yeah, it means mm. agreement. Yeah, agreement. Mm. Um, for example, Jesus is. His, his, his new covenant was upon his death, this is my body, this is my blood, that the, mm. I, I, upon my death I will make the new covenant and you have a new path to mm. heaven. That, that was coming out of the New Testament then. So mm. it's, all the, it's all sort of quid pro quo though, isn't it? Is well, all, very you, much so, you, and this you, is a idea of haggling and, and it's, it's, it, it's it, a cultural it, thing it, as but, well. But, it, yeah. but, yeah. but, but the point, Peter, I'm, yeah. I'm saying is that yeah. it's not about virtue or morality, it's about mm. you will do this yeah. so oh. that you can achieve... Yes, so and so reward, That's and if right. you don't do this, uh, hell awaits you. It's about mm. obedience, isn't it? Mm. It's not about examining your life and deciding whether you're a good person. It's about obedience. Oh, it's not it? about moral reasoning. At That's all. right. Yeah, it's not reasoning as to what's what's true. It's about obeying what the law is. No, I agree. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Yes. Yeah, there's no real sense of genuine altruism in these religions because it's always a case of. If you do these things, you will be rewarded in some sense. Oh, I don't know if that's or, right. Or you, mean, thou shalt not kill. Yep. You, know, you can't just say, well, that's just a rule. Let's not think about... I mean, that's a, do you really need to think about that as requiring... 
We needed the, we needed it yeah. on the we needed it on the commandments. You, you or of, else we were. Do you really need to think hard about that as being a moral sort of? Uh, you can't you just sort of? No, no but yeah. that's not really the point I'm getting at. I'm sort of getting at the point that um, that the sort of guidelines or moral virtues of doing these things, mm. loving your neighbour, turning the other cheek, etc., are all put forward in Christianity at least that by doing so you'll enter heaven. So. It's not really a true altruism is doing something where there's an expectation you may oh, not get anything in return. No, no I agree. As, as, and, and all and the whole yeah. concept of Christianity is there's a return here if you do the right if you do these things you'll that's, that's, get the kids that's to exactly hear. right. But, yes. And that's the irony though, isn't yes. it? What's, what is so appealing about Jesus's message yes. is the selflessness of it, the sacrifice of it, yes. and the um, you know the. Um, the, charitable the charity yeah. and the yeah. doing things right, turning the other cheek, mm-hmm. and loving your loving your enemies. So, but you're only doing it just so you can get a reward in the end. So was Mother yeah. Teresa only doing all that work so she could get to heaven? Oh, don't start. Of... Don't start us on Mother <laughs> Teresa. You no, realise no. how bad Mother Teresa was. <laughs> oh, okay. She okay. she was a terrible woman. Oh, okay. Well, I won't she, start you on that. Yeah, <laughs> Mother Teresa was into yeah. suffering. She, she was, really wanted right, other okay. people to suffer. She was a suffering oh, yeah. fetish. She was a terrible, terrible Mother Teresa. Was no Mother Teresa. Oh. Okay, there you, there you go. Yeah. There's another story there. Yeah. Okay. Her name was Agnes. Yeah. And she got she got her treatment at uh, the, one of the finest medical institutions in America. Right. Yeah. yeah. While at the same time, instead of buying drugs for the people in her care, she sent the money to the Vatican mm. Bank. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> as, as part of all this, part of my research, I was reading some Bertrand Russell, and oh. uh, he was explaining that um, it was turbulent times uh, around the period where uh, when Jesus died and... Um, uh, what was going on at that, that time, and people were looking for comfort in a religion. And one of the problems with Judaism was uh, circumcision mm-hmm. and uh, a restricted diet in what you were, things you could eat. Yes. And according to Bertrand Russell, uh, that made it really difficult to promote Judaism. But Christianity was this sort of... Um, um, sect, if you like, originally, sort of the Jesus sect of of Judaism. And guess what? You didn't need to be circumcised. Well, there's a bonus. <laughs> and you can and eat, you can eat whatever you like. Because I originally said when we were I talking... you we, had to be circumcised in Christianity. I think that came I, is, later. Is, is, no, there was... Why are, is, what, all Protestants were, though, for centuries? Is that right, or am I... It may, have come back, it may have come back into favour. Yeah, it's but, come back into favour, but, yeah. but Paul was very strong on that. That was the distinction, was yeah. the, the, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Yeah. It's See, true. I said two weeks ago when we were talking, what a great salesman Paul was. Like, he could sell ice to Eskimos, but I hadn't taken into account... He had the greatest <laughs> argument in the world, the, the circumcision <laughs> argument. He could say, you can have all of this religion stuff, yeah. and we won't have to chop a piece of foreskin off. Like, that's a compelling... Yep. Selling proposition. That was a unique selling point that he had there. <laughs> so he didn't require it. So no, no, for, no. He, he came back to bite him later because, as you know from his letters, he he was continually having to write to his churches, reminding them that it wasn't just love God and please yourself. There were still rules that he thought you should obey, and he kept writing letters saying, "Well, you still have to do these things." But but uh, he stripped away a lot of the um, strict observance that the Jews required. Mm. That that is, you didn't have to become a Jew first to become a Christian. Mm. You could be uh, Jesus was a path to heaven mm. in 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 its own way for yeah, the Gentile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, so point one is that a lot of what was in the Bible was basically a 
a rehashing of stories and myths that had developed by generations of people prior to that. And a lot of it was ideas that people had been um, thinking of and using. And, you know, humans were cooperating and getting along for tens of thousands of years, creating all sorts of civilizations uh, very happily without Christianity and continue to do so in areas where the Bible was completely unknown. So to say... uh, The other point in this is that when you're looking at the Bible is there's so many contradictions in terms of the moral concepts and what to do and what not to do that it's not like you can pick up the Bible and just follow it. You still have to pick and choose and decide I have to, you know, there'll be the Bible will be completely contradictory and you have to say, well, I'm going to choose one or the other. So mm. people are still making their own moral choice when they're following a so-called Bible edict because there's another alternative in there somewhere in the Bible. That's one of the problems of such an inconsistent document. So, yes. um, so, uh, so yeah, so that's all that part. Um, and what I wanted to get on to was how are we going for time-wise here? We're okay. We're probably about 40 minutes or something like that. So uh, let me grab another book. The Goodness Paradox, The Strange Relationship Between Virtue and Violence in Human Evolution by Richard Wrangham. So this is a good book. Oh, I, I recommend I it to you. I read that. Yeah. So um, what this book says is uh, he's looked at the evolution of mankind and basically he said that uh, human beings, when you compare us to other animals, our closest neighbours, chimpanzees and things like that, we're extremely low on, on hot reactive aggression. So if you look at a group of chimpanzees, they'll whack each other at the slightest provocation or even without it. Like, they're continually bickering and fighting and niggling each other. There's sort of hot aggression happening all the time in those communities where human beings, you know, you can put 300 of us in a little sardine and fly us across the country and we'll 99 times out of 100 behave and just get on with each other. Unless we're a rock star or a tennis player. Yeah, indeed. So this is a sort of a unique capacity of human beings is that when it comes to that sort of hot aggression reacting we're extremely low on that we have a capacity for planned aggression so we can coldly calculate to um, invade another country and send bombs and do things of that like of that nature but that sort of hot reactive aggression we're, we're extremely low on that's one of our unique features and he makes an argument that um Human beings have become domesticated somehow and that if you would compare us with our ancient ancestors, it would be like comparing a household dog with a wolf. And uh, he explains this domestication process where uh, there's these characteristics of domestication that occur and basically uh, bodies become smaller Males become less male and more feminised. Skulls get smaller. Jaws and teeth get smaller. Um, uh, You'll see on sort of wolves and and primitive dogs, they've got a long snout, but in a a domesticated species, the snout gets smaller. Same with humans. So 
There's a lot of the features of the domestication of a wolf into a dog that have appeared in human beings. And um, there's a range of other sort of biological factors you can get into. Um, one of the things is... Um, uh, what are these, uh, these cells that he talks about? Um, I might skip over that. But <coughs> gives a really good argument as to the fact that somehow human beings became domesticated and um, uh, he asks how did that come about and his answer is that at some point when humans could communicate, you had to overcome the, um, the, the idea that an aggressive alpha male gets whatever he wants is really hard to sort of stop. Like, you see it all the time in the animal kingdom mm. that these bullying alpha males just wreak havoc in a community and keep um, uh, uh, the alpha males subdued and, and there's very little cooperation because of the alpha male dominating. And essentially, when human beings reached the point that they could communicate, we had the idea of whispering beta males. Mm. So... Beta males could get together and say, that guy's a real asshole. Let's all just jump on him and kill him. Mm. <laughs> Cooperation. Yeah. And so he says that you've got sort of... Uh, you're trying to work out two reasons why people became cooperative. One is, you know, this idea of a cooperative group in warfare will beat an uncooperative group. So a, a group full of altruistic, cooperating individuals in a warfare scenario will out, outbeat the sort of squabbling masses of uncooperative ones. Mm-hmm. And so then they'll outbreed them because they'll win the battles and they'll, they'll mm-hmm. sort of... That in, um, encourages altruism. The alternative theory is that within groups you have the whispering beta males or uh, gathering together and knocking off disruptive, um, super-aggressive alpha males. And he gives compelling reasons as to why that second one is probably the most likely scenario, particularly when you look at um, (coughs) primitive hunter-gatherer situations. Uh, When they're going to sort of war against each other, two tribes... There's no incentive for somebody to be particularly altruistic and and at the head of the firing line, if you like. Like, generally, the skirmishes where people try not to get hit, and if they do, they run at the... You know, once one person's killed, it's all over and they sort of retreat or whatever. Mm. There, There isn't actually a reward for being altruistic in that sort of scenario. There isn't anything compelling. So, um, gives other reasons as well. So... But the idea of the whispering beta males, that does happen in primitive societies. You can go through Africa and um, places like that where there are still hunter-gatherer societies. By the way, he makes the point that uh, studying them for years as he did, it, they're just like these people back in England. As far as he was concerned, they, they, they had lovers, they had power conflicts, they had fun and games, they just conducted themselves the way most human beings do, but they just happened to do it in a dirt hut and in a, in a different environment. But basically, mm. hunter-gatherer societies without the benefit of the Judeo-Christian ethic basically conducted themselves as the way you would expect 
us to do if we were thrown into the same situation. Mm. But getting back to this idea of um, uh, this execution hypothesis that that groups manage to domesticate by bumping off the super-aggressive um, or troublesome characters who are causing problems for the community. Um, and so and that, and that um, <coughs> then um, the evolutionary uh, selection bias would have got rid of m- more of those alpha males Yes. Triggering us more towards a uh, they more domesticated version of the beta right. male. That's right. The aggressive alpha males weren't breeding then because they mm. were bumped off. They were dead. Pushed off the ice. Yeah. And the more cooperative, pro-social beta males were the ones who managed to breed. And would you believe that Charles Darwin talked about this? There you go. Uh-huh. I didn't yeah. know that. So... Um, uh, Charles Darwin was anxious to provide an evolutionary explanation for positive moral behaviour because he recognised that we had it and it didn't really seem to make sense that we we did have this positive moral behaviour. Mm-hmm. People at the time were trying to say it was a blessing from God mm. and Darwin was saying, well, I can't rely on that because the whole thesis is there's no intervention by God in this whole process that I'm talking about. So he was looking at... What were the reasons? And he said that, um, uh, let me just find it here. Um, Spotify oh. hasn't added support for oh. that. With... I'll turn that off. Spotify. Um, bear with me one second. Um, so he had to explain it without the influence of religious beings. And he observed that in contemporary societies, um, he called them malefactors, so people who were a pain in the ass who were... Stealing, killing, raping, you know, Mm. malefactors. In our societies, they're either executed or imprisoned. So he could see that in our modern societies, we can deal with those people and get them out of the system. But he recognised that they didn't have that capacity of imprisonment in primitive societies. And um, so he recognised that prehistoric human societies might have found some ways to harshly deal with violent and quarrelsome men. And if exceptionally aggressive men were always routinely punished in ways that reduced their reproductive success, there would have been eons of prehistory in which the culling of violent men could lead to evolutionary change. And Darwin's conclusion was forthright. The morality problem could be solved by an ancient system of execution, leading to the eradication of selfishly immoral individuals, which would lead to selection against selfish tendencies in favour of social tolerance. Uh, Through this kind of natural selection, he wrote, quote, the fundamental social instincts were originally thus gained. So he actually put this up as a theory. Mm. He also put the other theory about that I mentioned just before, and that was the one that sort of got the attention. But Richard Rangman says he really likes the first theory of Mm -hmm. this uh, execution-style thing. So, um, And really that comes down to then not only would... uh, you had to then, there was the power of the group could control you uh, if you didn't toe the line. So as a member of a group, remember if you were ostracised out of the group in those days, that was a death sentence. And mm. so part of our moral um, system that's hardwired into us is 
to do and act in ways that won't see us booted out of the group mm. or won't see us executed for being assholes. Yeah. Uh, so would, the, the would you sorry would you necessarily die if you booted out the group? I suppose if you're an Eskimo or a back in those living yeah, in a at some point yes. But if you were living in a in a warmer region and you're a good hunter, you'd still survive, but you wouldn't reproduce because you wouldn't have a mate. Perhaps you'd still need um, mm. you'd still need. There'd be times where you couldn't hunt. You'd need, you know, Pre- gatherers. Predators, mm. injury, mm. you know, mm. you, you, you break a leg, you'll, you'll die, yeah. Well, yeah. you would anyway, yeah. probably. Oh, but, but, you know, you might be cared for. But injuries, you know, there must be a point where, you, yes, you, your prospects are very low. They'd be certainly lower. Yeah. 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 So what we get down to is that a lot of our reaction to sort of moral mm. questions can actually be explained by having been bred into us over our evolution mm-hmm. as a means of staying in with the group, not Makes being executed Makes sense. for yeah. quarrelsome. Yeah. Um, and um, so um, looking at things like uh, Good Samaritan, why, why would we help somebody who's not in need of our help and we could just walk past them and they're not really our son or daughter or, any, or whatever like that, but... When they've done things like they've observed small children um, and put them in scenarios of like a Good Samaritan type situation, small children will naturally try to help out even against the instructions of, of adults. Like it's inbred in us, hardwired to some extent, that we behave in certain ways without any training at all, mm-hmm. uh, cultural or from our parents so um and some of this inbreeding can help explain our reaction to some um ethical dilemmas here <laughs> okay here we go Who so the these? classic trolley problem oh yes is trolley heading down the, the track uh it's going to crash into five people you stand there and there's a lever that you could switch the trolley onto a different track where it will kill one person do you allow the trolley to continue on its way or do you, you know, switch it and only kill one person? So uh, according to studies, most people, uh, let me see, 90% pull the lever to save five and kill one. Anyone disagree with that as being probably likely? I mean, you may even be in the 10% here. No, no. But, <laughs> no, no. But then, but no, then... Makes sense. Yeah. I, think, and, and I think most of us would say you've got to pull the lever and, and then, you, then you'll go to the bridge and the fat man. Yep. No. Uh, no. The organ donation. Have you heard this oh, one? Okay. Go on. Yeah. So uh, you've got somebody... Uh, you've got five patients who are all going to die. Mm-hmm. They need organ transplants. And you've got one healthy person who has all the necessary organs. <laughs> Right? Should you, Should you cut up the healthy person and distribute the organs amongst the other five to save them? And the answer is that 95% would not agree to such an operation. Oh, well, five would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Do, do, you, indeed. do you know that the uh, person with the, <laughs> with the five organs taken out... Yeah, were they were, an were, 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 <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Were they an alpha male? Perhaps? Well, Cam, actually, uh, Cam Riley has a theory about um, the nuclear codes for the you know countries with nuclear weapons. He said that that the um, 
that the nuclear codes should be um, inserted into the chest of the vice president. And if the president wants to use them, he's got to... He's got to grab a knife and cut open, physically cut open the chest of the vice president to get to them because if he's not willing to do that, then he shouldn't be willing to drop a bomb that's going to kill millions of people. Like, it was just an interesting concept, yeah. So, but, um, so the trolley problem, on the face of it, on the bare facts, is kind of the same situation. Kill one to save five. And on one avenue, we take a utilitarian approach, I think. Yes. Um, Maximise the general good. Mm. And on the second one, we take the deontological principle, which is right and wrong are absolutes. Mm. And we've really intuitively picked those without a good, clear moral reasoning as to why. When you say deontological, you mean because the principle that killing is wrong, that you must apply that principle. Correct. But you ditch it with the trolley because you go switch to the other one, which seems fairer. Because with the trolley one, you're not directly Mm. killing somebody. Indeed. You're Mm. just redirecting fate in a sense, whereas... Mm. With the it's a, trans- diff- it's a diff- diff- different ethical dilemma because mm-hmm. your action is completely different. Yes, it's for instance, it's a different ethical. You're getting thing. your hands dirty. Yeah, I'm getting my hands dirty. Now mm-hmm. you, you're you're also um, it's a similar th- different thing to administer euthanasia by a lethal injection by or by the one press- person pressing the button than it is to kill someone with a knife. Mm-hmm. It's a different moral yep. thing because you're using a different method. Mm. One is more horrifying, more painful. Well, this guy has a theory that a lot of our actions are based on what will the group think of us in this situation? Mm, we need to be... We need to have some plausible deniability if the group attacks us for our action. Yep. So... Um, so we have some inherent biases in us he calls an inaction bias, which is to do nothing and incur less blame, a side effect bias, whereas it's not so bad if the result is something of a side effect, and a non-contact bias, meaning most people prefer an action which allows them to avoid touching someone who is about to be harmed. Who this, says that? This guy Rangman in this book. Okay. And so what he's saying is that um, we hardwired into us, um, if we're going to do something borderline, need to have a plausible excuse for our community that they won't boot us out or kill us. Does he say that in relation to the trolley problem and its various paradoxes? uh, Well, he gave the example of the trolley Mm. problem, the organ donation. And on the one hand, if you're standing there covered in blood over the body of a person who's (laughs) had their organs ripped out, it's harder to explain to your group... I thought I was doing the right thing. Um, you, you're, yeah, but I don't buy that because right. I think all of us would have an implicit reaction that we know mm. we know that we're comfortable with the lever action, but we know that we're definitely uncomfortable with ripping someone's organs out. But he's saying that's. But be- it's not just because of. And, and why do you know? Pressure. Why do you know? It's a gut instinct, and he's saying yes, these yes, gut instincts come about yeah. because of this of this evolution. It's the same way that. When you, get, when you do a, commit a social faux pas and you feel embarrassed and you just have this terrible feeling in your gut and your face goes red and it's like, oh, did, mm. I, did I really 
go against the social norm here and I feel really bad about it. Like that's mm. an uncontrollable gut instinct that is a preservation sort of uh, thing that has been hardwired into us yeah. through um, – yeah. and he's saying the reason why you chose the trolley but didn't choose the operation is part of that hardwiring, that a lot of our moral – or some of our moral decision-making – that we can't really explain that's really on instinct. Is, that's is, the point I was, I was going to make. It, it, there's got to be reasons, mm-hmm. and it, it's that reasoning that you have to say, why, why is it? How can I rationalise this? How mm-hmm. do I get from A to B? Because um, it comes up in legal theory as well, this idea that um, like, there's things like uh, uh, some laws say you're not to drive in excess of the speed limit. That's just straightforward. The question is, did you? Were you driving the car? Were you in excess of the speed limit? But there's other things like don't drive dangerously. Mm. And they're to do with this, well, how ought you drive? And it's not your personal opinion. It's, it's this idea that there is a community value there. Mm. There's a kind of, kind of driving that – but how do you rationalise that? The police just have to say, that's dangerous driving. You can't drive like that. Mm. And what they're doing is they're saying, I reckon that if I arrest you for dangerous driving, other people will agree with me. Yes. That's dangerous. The, the judge just doesn't say – well, officer, what did you think? Oh, I thought it was dangerous. Oh, that's the end of yes. it. The judge goes, well, we, we've got to judge this. So What's the community standard? It's, it's, yeah, there's a community mm. standard there that it's what <coughs> ought to happen. And mm. we have that right now today in, in, in courts right now, that mm. this idea that, well, it's got to be objective and you've got to have a reason for it. And the reason is just that, well, the community what, what would, would say... What would most people think? What would what most people think? Man think? Yeah, what would most people think? Yeah. They'd say, you shouldn't be doing that. There's a law against that. Is and it? if you don't have a law against that, people get really, really upset. And is that yeah. why when the officer stops you and the first thing he says to you is, do you have a lawful reason for exceeding the speed limit? Because that's what they say to you. Well, mm. so, yeah, because the community would then yeah. say, yeah. well, if you are racing to get your pregnant wife to... That's your, right. That's right. Yeah. And, and yeah. if, he, if, if yeah. you refuse to pay yeah. the fine and yeah. you take it to court, yeah. Yeah. the officer has to be able to explain that's that right. he yeah. Yeah. gave you the opportunity yeah. to we've give We've all got our choices reason. to make, but... but if you have to give reasons, they often based on a community value, mm. which is, I reckon other people would agree with me that that's mm. you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Mm. So that's that happens today. Yeah. Mm. So there we go. Um, so just looking at our current society, um, and I mentioned this in a previous podcast called Whispering Beta Male, something or other is. Mm-hmm. We've got some alpha males in the world right now who own half the joint, like mm. in the you know. In, the, in our prehistory, we would have said, you're getting too big for your boots. And in primitive societies, um, particularly our Indigenous brothers and sisters here in Australia, if you killed a large animal or something, it was not the done thing to boast about it. Like, mm. you had to keep your head down. You didn't want to pop your head above the parapet and be seen to be too big for your boots because the whispering beta males would say, hang on a minute. Mm. Tone it down a bit. You're it's getting a bit above your station, isn't yeah. it? Indeed. Um, so um, in our modern world, um, we've lost the ability to chop down the, the alpha males and um, we need to start doing it via a wealth tax, not a physical, <laughs> just actually chopping them down, but, you know, that's for another topic anyway. <laughs> um, and so just in sort of in, uh, tying it all up then is... Really, when we're looking at the sort of moral code that went into Greek philosophy and into the Bibles, uh, which really came about largely through myths and legends, sort of rights and wrongs were being developed in an evolutionary sense by human history 
all the way leading up to that. And these are things that people have um, intuitively decided as what's right or wrong well before it was written in a book and they were mm. told that's the case. Mm-hmm. Or, or needed somebody to actually give a rational explanation because in their gut they knew hardwired, I shouldn't be cutting up this person for an operation but I can flick the, uh, the trolley lever switch. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, so Jonathan Haidt uh, has wrote about that pretty extensively, a uh, book with The Righteous Mind about the foundations of morality, right. suggesting that uh, our morality is instinctive and, and has, uh, say, five dimensions to it. Right. Uh, and I think that's a very, very persuasive argument. So mm. the psychologists, uh, and his, his viewpoint has been very popular very uh, embraced by a lot of people. So um, I've, I've got down the five things here. So the, the five foundations are, say, care and harm, fairness, cheating, uh, loyalty, betrayal, authority, subversion, and sanctity, degradation. And then he added a sixth one, which was liberty versus oppression. Mm. That fairness and cheating one, uh, one of the... Uh one of the studies they do is the um, that ultimatum game where oh, you've yes. got a person who's got $10 and they can decide how they're going to split it with another person and the other person can either reject or accept their offer. If they reject, then nobody gets anything. If they accept, then the offer's accepted. So the person's got $10 and says, well, I'll split it 50-50. Person A says, I've got $10, uh, I agree to split it 50-50. Person B will invariably say, well, that's fair, I accept the deal and we're done. And they do these experiments with people where they can't even see each other. And uh, I think, you know, you can get down to 70-30 or something like that where person A says, I'm keeping 70, I'm only going to give you 30. But below that level, uh, people who are only offered 20% say, stuff it. I'm not even going to take the 20. I'm going to make us both lose. There's a sort of sense of fairness. And they can do that test with um, Kalahari Bushmen and with Golden Sachs Bankers and everything in between, and we tend to come up with the same result Mm. as a hardwired sense of fairness. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Sounds like a divorce settlement. Right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, where one party says, uh, I'm taking 90%, you can have 10, you've you've got your car, off you go, you know. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, we're going to court over this. Yeah, except in in this scenario, when the person B says no, it means neither of them gets anything. You bring the whole house to it. Yeah, and people are prepared to accept, I'll get nothing, but I'm really pissed oh, with that the guy. Family. It all goes on cost. Yeah, yeah that, that, well, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, if you had a situation where there was an offer in a family court settlement mm-hmm. of, oh, I'm going to give you five or ten percent, for yeah, example, yeah. somebody would say, "Well, bugger it, I'll, I'll piss oh, up yes. the wall in legal I'll, costs." I'll and, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, that sometimes mm. actually happens, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's mm. true. So there is that innate sense of fairness. Mm. Yeah. So given all that, and it seems like uh, we're all sort of seeming to agree that mm. uh, morality might be instinctive and that it, it perhaps derives from our evolution in living in communities. Yes. And um, there's also the idea, which has been very well established by studies on children, that children, as you were saying before, tend to have a sense of fairness 
Mm. They'll be the good Samaritan. They also they have a sense of what is right or wrong without being told and will often argue with an adult correctly as to what the right or wrong thing is. Then how does that then, in your opinion, um, marry with the idea of moral reasoning then? And why is all of this philosophy about what's right or wrong and what objective moral values are? Because I know, Trevor, you and I have argued uh, mm. extensively that whether objective moral values actually exist, mm. uh, like moral truths, do they exist? Many people say that they do. So how does that, how does that even marry with uh, reasoning about morals if mm. our morality is basically derived from what's instinctive and then our societies and our individuals and our cultures just manipulate a few, say, in Jonathan Haidt's uh, example, five different modes of morality. Our, our reasoning is based only on instinctive things. How do, I, I how would do you... say that instinct, though, is usually geared towards promoting the community. Like, generally... Yes, but instinct is only based on survival value and, and what has yeah, yeah, and selection but, bias. But yeah, but those sorts of things that are hardwired into us are kind of things that uh, promote the community at large um, so that one person doesn't get everything or gets, doesn't get an unfair advantage. It's, it's a communal type Enforcement, it so appears to me, and, and humans are unique in that we actually enforce these things because when they look at um, chimpanzees and one chimp might be cheating on another chimp in terms of, um, like, uh, stealing food or even beating up other chimps, there's no enforcement by the other chimpanzees of, of any morals amongst them. Humans are unique that we're watching and observing and we're saying... Uh, you're transgressing a, a community uh, ethos here. Um, we're pulling you up. So I think a lot of these inbuilt instinctive things that we have are designed to keep community harmony and community flourishing and not let one person dominate or take mm. more than a fair share. Sure. Okay, so I accept all that. And mm. forgive me for the Socratic questioning. Mm. Yeah, okay. But yeah. you started that at the start, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to bring yeah. it back. But if yeah. it's just based on our community, how can we have objective moral values? Because um, also I'd probably disagree mm. that chimpanzees have their own moral codes in mm. their own societies. For instance, they will, <coughs> they will uh, punish transgressors and they will also patrol their territory and other chimpanzees from other rival tribes, if they're found wandering, chimpanzees will hunt them down and kill them. Yeah, that's a, that's a tribal, um, tribal sort of um, protection of area. But the first part you mentioned about pulling up transgressors within the community, not really. So that's not correct in my understanding. But what was the question before that? You're saying, so if, so the, if, 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 if our moral values then are entirely derived from our sense of community... How can they be objective? How can they be objective, universal moral truths so, so then, if they are only subject to our... So they only apply to humans and they don't, for instance, apply to any other animal forms, even if there was another group of very human-like beings somewhere in the universe. Yeah. Uh, I, think I, that, that, I think that begs the philosophical question about... Uh, um, um, are these things made by humans or are they natural? I mean, I, That's what objective I, I, moral truths are, yeah. though, that, that, that they must be true. But, I, but doesn't that beg the question, it's got some natural source, like it's 
comes from God or, or these other sort of things. It, 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 these are made by people. Uh, people have morals. Uh, and animals will have something else, I think. A different species will have something else. It's, it, it's, it's created by people. Uh, it doesn't come from some... I thought that was the whole point of the, that, that's what the discussion. I would, was that I, was I, would, I would absolutely agree with it, what you're it's saying. It's not coming from some external natural source. It, it's made by people make these things. Yeah, I would agree yeah. with that. But yeah. then you get people who are also um, secularists and atheists, such as Sam Harris, who would say that there are objective moral values and you can measure them scientifically. You can say what is the, the best situation for all sentient creatures. Yeah, that's what Sam Harris argues. Mm. Yeah. So, how does Sam Harris argue the uh, the organ donation one? I'm not sure if he's addressed that specific yeah. question, uh, right? Because yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he flicked the lever. Yeah, but, yeah. but I just yeah, well, he's yeah. a consequentialist, and you know mm. his moral landscape argument that uh, you should be able to measure scientifically the good, mm. yes. the overall good, and there might be several different equal parts yes. of what the good is. So he would probably agree to the operation by the sounds of it. Because he's got that full-on Unitarian sort of mm. thing, isn't it? Uh, sure, I, I, I don't. I'm not sure because I, I, he yeah. would he would say that the intentions and the actual act of whatever you do are part of the moral consequences mm. of. It, his is a, basically mm. a consequentialist mm. uh, philosophy, which is part utilitarian. He, the short answer is I don't know, but when I've worked out the meaning of life, he'll be the first to know. <laughs> Well, I was kind of hoping we would get to it uh, in this episode, the meaning of life, and you know, solve it all. But uh, you know, perhaps another time. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so yeah. So that's my sort of knowledge and theories on evolution. And uh, so, what you're saying, Trevor, is our morals. Western civilization would have been just as good, maybe a little bit different in some ways, but would have still existed without the so-called. Judeo-Christian ethic. We, we are hardwired pro-social creatures. Mm. We would have, we would have produced laws and customs with some we variations, of but we generally pro-social. There was the Indian mm. civilization, the mm. Chinese civilization. Mm. They didn't have Judeo-Christian yeah. traditions. The interesting mm. thing is where the world's getting to at the moment is because previously you needed to be part of the community, otherwise you would die. You know, left out on the savannah on your own, you're a goner. Mm-hmm. These days we've created a world where you could be quite a dysfunctional human being and you can still You could become a, president of the United indeed, States. Indeed you can. <laughs> or you can, you can conduct a job, you know, you could be a computer programmer living in your mum's basement and having no contact with the world at all. Like it's possible for people to be quite dysfunctional. Mm. And the village doesn't get to um, regulate people anymore like it used to. Mm. Uh, the community doesn't. And Is it, isn't it better to be in a more pluralist society when there are many views than the dominant sort of punishing sort of uh, norm? Mm. And, and good point. Malik makes that point, is that oh, okay. in certain communities are too rigid, like the Spartans didn't allow for any variation, yep. then other communities are so disparate and unconnected that they are then overtaken by other countries that are less um, uh, civilised but more cohesive. Yes. Um, so you need an amount of cohesiveness to hold you together oh, exactly. or... or Basically, a band of cohesive barbarians take you over, sort of thing, is what happened in history to some extent. Mm. If people were 
had no sense of community. Right, so that's the Aussie, Aussie, yeah. Aussie. Yeah. Some people would argue that's currently happening in Europe. <laughs> well, all over the world you could argue that um, we've, we've reached an interesting time in our evolution where the village and the community can't really regulate people anymore like it used to. No. I think it's a question, though, overall of morality, though, mm. when, we, when we say that it is community-driven and mm. driven by our civilization and how it's evolved that we could probably all accept that our the way we've evolved specifically and what we've currently agreed to be the things that we consider moral and immoral, they're quite different than what they were 2,000 years ago and they're quite different than what they were 6,000 years ago. It's quite conceivable that we could have evolved into very, very similar beings with quite a different moral code. And so then if you consider that our morality is based on how we've evolved as a community, I get back to the point that I was saying before, then how does reason play a part in that morality and isn't the the part of reason in that morality only really what's driven Mm -hmm. by evolution and survival? And then doesn't that sort of create a bit of a tension in your own mind about what morality is then? Yeah, I sort of disagreed right at the beginning with your premise where you sort of said we're very different to people of 2,000 years ago. And well, I, our, moral, I um, I, our moral, I, our moral I, principles, are, I'm not saying we're I, different, we are exactly the same as I, people, but we, our moral principles yeah. are totally so different. So, like, for example, like, I think read the history... Slavery. Of, the history of mm-hmm. fire insurance once I got into and the idea was that where it all started from is that, you know, villages, because it was called fire insurance because... Today's home and contents, but then the idea was that you wanted to protect from things burning down because you had fires and mm. homes were burned down. So the village would all get together and contribute to a fund because every year somebody's house would burn down in the village. Right. So you'd always have a fund to sort of rebuild the particular house, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes. But today we don't have that. We're sort of it's up to you. You ensure your own home, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And mm. there's, there's not, there, there isn't really that sort of community. Is that the kind of thing you're talking I about? I am, we're, yeah. We're, but that's a very specific yeah. moral precept that's evolved because of that actual physical situation. The world could be a different place. We could have evolved as slightly different beings. For instance, Neanderthals were very, very similar to uh, Homo sapiens. In fact, considered part of the same human um, species. By some, would their morality have been different than ours? And therefore, morality isn't really based on our reasoning. It's only based on what is what what works for us to survive. Well, according to this book, Neanderthals never went through a domestication process. So you can look at the fossil records, and that Neanderthal-shaped head. Is is the wolf head, and our head is is the puppy. Like yeah. they didn't go through a domestication process that Homo sapiens did. That's mm. the difference. That's so what we we learnt, yes through that domestication process we were then able to cooperate. They didn't have the same levels anywhere the near levels. the same levels they, of they cooperation. Had, um, they had smaller groups, mm. but they were but, they were quite in, just as intelligent. And but, so with yeah, but groups, they they didn't have the uh, the social cooperation skills that we had. And that they, was that, they, that was, they did, but they may have had them in lesser quantities, yeah, and they had correct. smaller 
smaller groups of people than what we had. But, but that was their downfall, that they didn't have the social cooperation mm. skills that we ended up having. Maybe. We, yeah. I don't think we really know. We don't know mm. why they, why they uh, were wiped out or mm. whatever. Well, on, on the point well, of reasoning, well, though, Hugh, are you, are you, maybe reasoning is, as Trevor was saying, I think, at the outset, so that you can say, I'm pretty confident choice A is morally right, you know, like with the, with the lever... Mm. I'm I'm worried about now choice B. Maybe reason, rationality and reasoning is just that thing you use to say, well, if I if I'm over that view here, what would I think here? It's it's not like the our morals don't come from the it's our rationalization is just to enable us to be able to be consistent and logical and that at some point in our history we thought if we think hard about this, we can work out other problems, and maybe that's all. I think that rationality is about. Yeah, I think that's what I. I, I think I, I'm tending to come to that conclusion as to what you said. That we kind of, when we hear a moral paradox or a, we're asked a moral question, we kind of know which way we want to answer. And we justify, don't we? It. And then we justify yeah. it by using and reason. And we also sort of, we, we like to find out what other people would say. Like we go, the, yes. the, oh, good. Uh, I'm, what does Trevor I'm, think? I don't want to disagree <laughs> yeah. with him yeah. quite so openly. Good, as what I, I agree do. with that too. But, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's part of justifying. Because I don't want group or, censure. Or, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and maybe enabling us to then solve the next complicated problem when we're not really too sure um, because you've got those reasons. But, but the reasons, those reasons weren't the reason why you made the first choice because you just said, that's wrong, I'm mm. not doing that. Yes. Yeah. And studies in neuroscience in terms of decision-making have been tending to show that people make the decision before they're even consciously aware mm. of yeah. making the decision. Yeah. Certainly that's the case with politics where people yeah. uh, choose a side and then justify it later. Yeah. Mm. And I think it's the same thing for the police officer when pulling somebody out for dangerous driving, they go, that's dangerous driving, and then why? Uh, okay. <laughs> and they've got to go through and list it, but... You know, it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. You go, yeah, I, I can make a judgment. Yeah. All right, dear listener. Well, it's back to the book, and I'll be curious to know how many of you actually listened to the whole of the episode 238 that I repeated or whether you just fast-forwarded. But uh, in any event, let's talk about it. Now, who is Michael J. Sandell? Um, he's actually a um, uh, is a professor of government at Harvard University, and he has a legendary justice course, which is one of the most popular at Harvard. Thousand students enrolling every year. And Harvard has actually made it available on their website. If you go to justiceharvard.org, you'll see his lectures and you'll see a lot of the stuff that he's doing on there. So check that out. Um, okay, so in terms of the book, Justice, What is the Right Thing to Do? So faced with moral quandaries, what is the right thing to do? And he basically gives uh, or identifies three different approaches that we can have to moral dilemmas. And uh, the first one is the greatest happiness principle. Um, make the decision which will uh, produce the uh, maximum amount of happiness and human flourishing and the least amount of suffering. And that, of course, is utilitarianism. Second way of approaching decision-making is to, whatever you do, respect individual freedom. So that would be, uh, at an extreme end, a libertarian type of view. And the third way that he sort of advocates 
and it's an Aristotelian view, so derived from Aristotle. And look, it's not a neat concept, it's, but it's basically what do people morally deserve and why, which involves truly identifying the purpose of a practice and examining what are the good virtues that we would want to promote. So uh, utilitarianism, libertarianism and Aristotelian approaches to questions about morals. So let's kick off with um, a discussion about, well, his first example is about price gouging in communities after a disaster, whether it's a cyclone, hurricane, tornado, whatever. You'll often find um, um, gas stations, fuel stations, whatever, maybe charging exorbitant prices for fuel and for ice, things that were a dollar a litre or 50 cents a bag suddenly become $5 a litre and, and $3 a bag. So um, uh, what he says there is um, if you take the utilitarian approach to it, what's the greatest happiness principle? A utilitarian might argue, well, look, free markets are, is what's driving our, our, our best-performing economies. The last thing we want is a command economy like the Soviets had. So in terms of actually maximising um, the most benefit and welfare for our communities, um, free markets uh, have proven to be the best. And while there might be some downsides, overall human flourishing demands that we maintain free markets. And so that's a utilitarian approach to arguing whether that's a good practice or not. So the um, libertarian approach to that would be, well, sellers and buyers have a choice. Nobody's uh, forcing them to buy stuff. It's up to a vendor what price they want to put on it, and it's up to a buyer um, whether they want to buy something or not. And so as a matter of a libertarian free choice approach to the practice, um, you know, that should be allowed. So the counter-arguments to that... Um, at the utilitarian level would be, well, is really the overall welfare of the community served by this price gouging? And if a community can't trust and rely on stable prices following a disaster, um, is that a problem for its overall flourishing and welfare? And if if a handful of people manage to... Um, extract wealth from a vast majority of the others, surely that's not a utilitarian result. So that would be the sort of counter-argument at a utilitarian level. And the counter-argument to the libertarian argument, still using libertarian principles, would be, well, are the buyers under duress? Are they truly free when they're making that decision? If you've got to get your family out of the area and drive to safety you don't have a choice you need to fill up the car with petrol if your food is spoiling in the fridge and you need to feed the family you need to buy ice so is there really um freedom to make a choice in that situation so so still using utilitarian and libertarian arguments people might argue that in fact that sort of practice should not be allowed that sort of price gouging there should be some regulation so that's um, when you're hearing people arguing just a way of categorising it. He says that 
there's a third way of looking at this, which is that a society in which people exploit their neighbours in times of crisis is not a good society, and that unfair exploitation is just um, unjust and it's wrong. And um, if you sort of listen to that, the third the third way of saying it seems much more judgmental. Um, in the initial ways with libertarianism and utilitarianism, I mean, everyone wants to promote happiness, everyone wants to promote freedom, and, and the argument is really about how best to do it and the trade-offs that might be required. But they're also quite sort of unem- unemotional and quite... They're not judgy, not judgmental at all, those, those sort of utilitarian and libertarian approaches. They are an analytical, cold, rational attempt to discern what's the best thing to do. Whereas that third option, that Aristotelian approach, which is, that's just a really shitty thing to happen. And as a society, that's just wrong. We don't want that in a good society. It doesn't make a good polis, as Aristotle would say. Uh, it's unjust. We should be doing things to make sure that doesn't happen. So so that's a sort of a summary of, of how you could look at these issues. Sometimes it's hard to identify what's really going on and what's really the thought processes involved. So I'm going to give some examples here. Um, in the case of the Purple Heart. So uh, in America, with um, soldiers who are injured in combat, um, they receive a Purple Heart. And um, it's not a reflection of bravery at all, but it's just whether you are injured uh, in the service, in combat. So um, what they had was a situation where... um, People who have um, post-traumatic, post-traumatic stress disorder were applying for the Purple Heart. And the military was against awarding Purple Hearts. And so the people in favour of awarding a Purple Heart for um, post-traumatic stress disorder were saying, well, it's, it's an injury that is incurred in the course of a soldier acting in battle the country and um, the military, um, the, the counter argument was that it wasn't an intentional inf- uh, injury that the enemy inflicted on them. It was sort of a byproduct. And the counter argument to that was well, you're awarding uh, Purple Hearts to people who have had their eardrums burst through, um, through, uh, you know, bombs going off and whatnot, and that, you know, the enemy wasn't planning on bursting the eardrums of the soldiers, but that was just a sort of a, a, a byproduct of what happened, and the same would apply to post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. So it really came down to a thing where what's really happening there is the military wants to promote the idea of their soldiers as being brave and fearless and mentally strong as well as physically strong and awarding a Purple Heart for what they saw or interpreted as mental weakness 
was contrary to what they were tr- a virtue that they were trying to promote in the service the the the, the virtue of of fearless mental toughness and awarding a purple heart was against that so so that sort of demonstrates that you know with these practices and what's happening you sometimes really have to look closely at why is what what's the purpose of um what's the what's the uh, purpose of the practice um why are we awarding purple hearts and then what what virtues are we trying to promote um in doing that so this will become clearer as we go through some more examples another one just in identifying what's going on was the post the global financial crisis and um the there was outrage about the CEOs of various companies that had failed and were bailed out by the government, yet the CEOs and executives were claiming bonuses. And um, you know why were people outraged at these CEOs getting these bonuses? And at one level, you might think it is greed, but it's not really greed because in good times when CEOs are paid extraordinary amounts of money. It's not because they deserve them as CEOs that they're actually achieving anything that's warranted by those amounts, that warrants those amounts. Um, what's happening is, um, you know, greed is acknowledged and almost applauded. Gordon Greco, greed is good from Wall Street. And so with the CEOs being awarded uh, bonuses after the financial crisis, that was really a case of rewarding failure. People saw it as a rewarding of failure, and that's really what caused the outrage. So just on that point in terms of CEO pay, and it's not really relevant to the question of the morality, but it's just fun facts that people should know. So um, um, in 1980, CEOs earned so chief executive officers earned 42 times what their workers earned. That was in 1980. By 2007, they were earning 344 times what their workers were earning. So in the space of 27 years, uh, an enormous increase in the CEO pay compared to the normal workers' pay. So, um, and really, without good reason, if you were to look at... Um, other countries. So, for example, the CEOs at this is a, that was a statistic for US companies, by the way. So, um, in the 2004 2006 period, uh, in US companies, the average CEO was getting 13.3 million, yet in Europe, uh, average CEO was 6.6, and in Japan, 1.5. So, was it because the American executives were more deserving? Um, or did the differences reflect factors unrelated to effort and talent? So uh, that's just a little aside on CEO wages. So um, when it comes to um, um, conflicting moral principles, um, we often think we have an answer and a reason, but upon further examination, maybe we don't. So 
If you look at the trolley problem, classic trolley problem, um, do you pull the lever to um, to save the life of five men, but knowing that you're going to be killing a different uh, single man? And um, most people are willing to switch the lever. But then when you describe to them a scenario where there's a bridge and do you push the fat man off the bridge, which will stop the train, and in these hypothetical circumstances, there's no room for doubting whether it will stop the trolley, it, it just will. And at that point, people say, well, in the first instance, with just moving the lever, people will give the reason, well, saving five lives to, it'll cost one life, but in a utilitarian uh, way of thinking, that makes sense, and yeah, I'd pull the lever. And yet, when people are faced with the option of pushing the fat man off the bridge to stop the trolley, uh, most people balk at that then. So the same utilitarian argument would apply, but people don't want to use it. There's something about it that makes a difference. So you might think you've got a moral reason behind something, but it often, with a bit of exploration, you might find, in fact, that you don't. Um, I've got an, uh, a bit of an answer to that trolley problem scenario and it comes back to, I think, what we might have mentioned in that episode 238 where um, if you're going to hurt somebody or cause injury to somebody in the group, you might want some plausible deniability about it. And um, when you've got your hands dirty, having pushed somebody, you've actually laid your hands on somebody, uh, your plausible deniability is reduced. So people will look at you and find you more guilty for that. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, so, but we, we find ourselves, we feel the pressure to try and reason our way to a convincing distinction as to why we would, why would we flick the lever but not push the fat man? And we, we feel a compulsion to try and find a rational reason why. So other examples of utilitarian approaches, and one of them would be the lifeboat and the cabin boy. So this involved a case where uh, shipwreck, um, the uh, sailors scramble onto a lifeboat. Um, the cabin boy is the smallest and he's the weakest and they're, they're sort of marooned on this lifeboat for a significant amount of time. They end up killing the boy and eating him. And um, people would argue that uh, from a utilitarian approach, they all would have died had they not um, killed the cabin boy. Um, and, and so this is that um, maximising utility, the utilitarian approach. Um one other, you know, the problem with the utilitarian approach is it sort of flattens values to make a calculation. So it's not always about lives and um, one life versus another life. It, 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 other factors come into play. It's not always just counting lives on one hand and other lives on the other hand. So the kind of example he gives in this book is about the Christians and the Lions where, um, where you've got a stadium of 10,000 crazy Romans who are watching one Christian getting eaten by a lion and a utilitarian 
argument might be that the joy and ecstasy and wonder and just good times felt by the 10,000 um, spectators could possibly, in a way up, outweigh the suffering of the individual Christian who's just been eaten by a lion. So if you're going to take a utilitarian approach, you are, you are adding up um, happiness and enjoyment of people without necessarily um, judging the the value of that happiness or that um, uh, so-called flourishing. So the other example would be um, dogfights and libraries. So if you had a population where most of the people enjoyed watching dogfights and really enjoyed it and went to it and and bet on it and loved the bloodlust of a dogfight, but hardly anybody liked a library and just didn't go, then under a utilitarian approach, you would say, our society should be building stadiums for dogfights and not building libraries. Um, So that utilitarian approach, it rewards happiness no matter how it's attained. There's no judgment about what is good. So um, other sort of... uh, examples that he gave about that was um, you could have a terrorist, you know the terrorist has planted a bomb, you know the bomb is going to go off in 12 hours is it legitimate to torture the terrorist in order to find out where the bomb is and save potentially hundreds of lives and a utilitarian approach would be of course pain and suffering of one terrorist laid up against the lives of hundreds of people, uh, torture the guy and, um, and and save those lives. But what if you said, well, uh, terrorists won't talk, but you need to torture his innocent child in front of him, and that's uh, likely to make him talk. Is it a legitimate thing to, to torture his innocent child who had nothing to do with the bombing? And of course, most of us would say, "No, that's not that's not acceptable." So that utilitarian argument kind of falls over because we know we should be valuing, um, uh, making a value judgment call. It's not just about numbers. Um, uh, other example he gave was about uh, Philip Morris, the tobacco company, and the Czech government, and. Um, basically, uh, in order to make a case as to why tobaccos uh, shouldn't be outlawed and 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 whatnot, um, they calculated that in fact um, smokers, because they die early, are actually less of a drain on the public purse than non-smokers. And uh, Philip Morris calculated a saving for the Czech government of 147 million dollars per year. Um, through um, tobacco use in the country because of the early deaths of people um, who were the smokers. And that, uh, as a utilitarian argument, makes sense, but people made a judgment call and it was a PR disaster for Philip Morris. 
And another example where a company did something, made a similar, had a similar thought process was um, in the US, the Ford Pinto had an exploding gas tank. Uh, if you were rear-ended, then there was a fair chance um, that the, uh, the fuel tank would explode. And the executives became aware of this, but they calculated that the cost of a recall would be more expensive than the cost of the injury and death claims that they had to make. So they made a conscious decision not to recall the Ford Pinto. So uh, so there's big problems with a utilitarian approach to solving moral problems. So uh, looking at libertarianism then, and some examples of that. Uh, so with a, a libertarian framework of thinking, you would say that there should be no... No paternalism, like no sort of uh, seatbelt legislation, no mandatory helmets, um, no morals legislation. You know, if people want to um, sell their bodies for sex, fine. Um, No redistribution of wealth. Uh, The individual is paramount. So that's the sort of libertarian um, approach. It's freedom of the individual to do whatever the individual wants. And... Um, one example of that uh, that he gives is if somebody has a kidney and they want to give their kidney to a relative who needs a kidney, uh, we've got two, each of us, normally. We've got a spare and our bodies can function fine with just the one. Of course, it is a risk that if something then happens to our remaining kidney, we're stuck without one. But um, it's quite, you know, it's not uncommon for people to donate a kidney to a loved one. And from a libertarian point of view, if you wanted to sell a kidney to um, somebody, then why shouldn't you be able to sell your kidney to somebody who needs a kidney? And libertarians would say that's no freedom of choice. They don't have to sell it if they don't want to. Um, What the... What then, though, if you say that uh, the buyer of the kidney doesn't need the kidney for their health, but uh, is some sort of crazy art collector and considers kidneys to be a a piece of art and uh, plans to just um, plop it in some clear resin and use it as an ornament on the coffee table. I mean, should we allow people to sell their kidneys willingly for that purpose and many of us will balk at that and say i don't care whether there's free choice on both sides here that's not something that we would want to happen in our society so um so that's uh you know an example of how libertarianism still needs a judgment call at some point otherwise it's uh it doesn't solve all of our problems um Really interesting examples with the U.S. Civil War. So I found this fascinating. And um, did you know um, that with the Civil War, um, when um, when people when men were uh, drafted, they uh, if they were wealthy, they had a choice. So they could pay a commutation fee of I think about three hundred dollars. 
if they paid the fee, they didn't have to serve. And the other option they had was they could hire a substitute to fight for them in the war rather than do it themselves. So of the roughly 207,000 men who were actually drafted, 87,000 paid the commutation fee, 74,000 hired substitutes, and only 46,000 actually served. So um, those who hired substitutes to fight in their place included Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, and the fathers of Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt. There you go. I didn't know that. That was interesting. So um, libertarianism, we would say, well, if people want to um, accept money to fight for somebody else, then that should be okay. And if people are rich enough to pay money to avoid conscription, if you, uh, that should be fair enough as well. But others of us would look and say, well, that's just a rule that benefits the rich. And the rich have got choices, but the poor don't. Um, so you look at that scenario and um, you would say, well, that's a pretty crazy situation that they had in the Civil War. But if you look at the modern US Army, um, what are they doing? It's full of poor people who are being paid to serve. Um, the only rich people who are serving there normally are, are well-credentialed uh, officers or whatever, not necessarily going to be on the front line but or, or have got some sort of crazy military history to them, but your average rich person doesn't, uh, or even middle class, doesn't serve in the US Army. It's full of poor people who are... Um, it's their only option to either get an education or, in some cases, to get citizenship. So um, so uh, it's, it's really just a form of a mercenary army when you think about it that way. So um, uh, now, Michael Sandel, he, I didn't mention earlier, but he's the guy who wrote the book I talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago about um, a meritocracy and how it's basically very difficult to create a meritocracy and it's probably not something that you would want to do anyway. And um, I'll just read a couple of things here. And this is a little bit of diversion from where we are, but I just found this one interesting as well. So for those of you who have listened to the previous episode about the um, meritocracy argument, he talks about um, when somebody is accepted or rejected from a university and uh, he, as I mentioned before, really argues that your ability to get into, you know, some of the ex more exclusive universities is a matter of luck in terms of uh, intelligence and DNA and also your family and your uh, peer group and your a whole host of other factors that have gone into it. And even your ability to work hard is... Um, to a large extent, a result of things beyond your control. So I just enjoyed this one where he talked about um, the rejection letter. So if he was writing a rejection letter um, to an applicant for a university course, it would be as follows. Dear Miss Hopwood, we regret to inform you that your application for admission has been rejected. 
Please understand that we intend no offence by our decision. We do not hold you in contempt. In fact, we don't even regard you as less deserving than those who were admitted. It is not your fault that when you came along, society happened not to need the qualities you had to offer. Those admitted instead of you are not deserving of a place nor worthy of praise for the factors that led to their admission. We are only using them, and you, as instruments of a wider social purpose. We realise you will find this news disappointing, but your disappointment should not be exaggerated by the thought that this rejection reflects in any way on your intrinsic moral worth. You have our sympathy in the sense that it is too bad you did not happen to have the traits society happened to want when you applied. Better luck next time. Sincerely yours. And then for the successful applicant. Dear successful applicant, we are pleased to inform you that your application for admission has been accepted. It turns out you happen to have the traits that society needs at the moment. So we propose to exploit your assets for society's advantage by admitting you to the study of law. You are to be congratulated, not in the sense that you deserve credit for having the qualities that led to your admission. You do not, but only in the sense that the winner of a lottery is to be congratulated. You are lucky to have come along with the right traits at the right moment. If you choose to accept our offer, you will ultimately be entitled to the benefits that attach to being used in this way. For this, you may properly celebrate. You, or more likely your parents, may be tempted to celebrate in the further sense that you take this admission to reflect favourably, if not on your native endowments, then at least on the conscientious effort you have made to cultivate your abilities. But the notion that you deserve even the superior character necessary to your effort is equally problematic, for your character depends on fortunate circumstances of various kinds for which you can claim no credit. The notion of desert does not apply here. We look forward nonetheless to seeing you in the fall. Sincerely yours. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, I enjoyed that one. And now, um, okay, so we've illustrated the problems with uh, utilitarianism, we've illustrated the problems with libertarianism, demonstrated that we're really wanting to feel a compulsion to try and justify and reason our way to why we think in a certain way and um, uh, another example. And now we're getting to more of the Aristotelian view that we need to understand. So he gives the example of a cheerleader in the United States called Callie Smart. So she was a freshman cheerleader, but she had cerebral palsy. And she was enormously popular with the crowd as she zoomed up and down the sidelines cheering on the the, uh, the crowd. But the other cheerleaders um, and their parents were not happy. Uh, well, the parents complained and, um, and got her kicked off the cheerleading squad. And... Now, this was the parents of the existing cheerleaders. So it wasn't parents of kids who had missed out on a place. It was parents of kids who were actually in the team. So you would think, what's their problem? Why would they um, object to a girl in a wheelchair um, being a cheerleader? And... um, What really was happening there is that 
talking about the father of one of the cheerleaders, a uh, father who objected. Um, Sandel says, um, here is my hunch. His resentment probably reflects a sense that Callie is being accorded an honour she doesn't deserve in a way that mocks the pride he takes in his daughter's cheerleading prowess. If great cheerleading is something that can be done from a wheelchair, then the honour accorded to those who excel at tumbles and splits is depreciated to some degree. So this gets back to this Aristotelian approach that you need to ask, um, uh, what's the purpose of the practice and what is the virtue that we're trying to promote? So the purpose of the practice of cheerleading is to G up the crowd and get everyone excited and making noise. And she was clearly doing that. Um, what's the virtues that we want to promote? I mean, there's a number of ways of skinning a cat, a number of ways of doing something, and it's a particular way of achieving a purpose that can sometimes be important as well. So this is sort of identifying that it wasn't just about um, getting the crowd excited. It was about uh, a reverence, a promotion of the virtue of, of what you'd normally associate with athletic cheerleading performance. So, um, so that's part of this Aristotelian view is what's the purpose of the practice and what's the way it's supposed to be done um, that's also important. So, um, so in order to determine a fair way of allocating cheerleading positions, we need to determine the nature and purpose of cheerleading. But its purpose is not just instrumental, i.e. to stir up the supporters, but it has a purpose of celebrating certain excellences and virtues. So the parents wanted cheerleading to honour the traditional cheerleader virtues their daughters possessed, um, and that's where they came into conflict with uh, poor old Callie Smart. The same with the army, with the Purple Heart. The army wanted to honour the traditional notion of a soldier being mentally tough. So, um, so according to Aristotle, there are two ideas. Justice is teleological. So we need to figure out the telus, the purpose, the essential nature of the practice in question. And justice is honorific. We need to figure out what virtues it should honour or reward. So that first bit, justice is teleological. We need to figure out the telus, the purpose, the essential nature of the practice in question. When I hear that, I immediately think of my arguments with the 12th man about Israel Folau and, um, and his playing of football. And the 12th man was all in favour of uh, why would you... Um, stop Falao from um, practicing football. And I, in my argument, was trying to explain that a modern day footballer is not just about catching and passing and running. There are, it's a business of football. So there are other factors involved besides your pure ability to play football. And in terms of, uh, Big money football in the NRL, um, 
conduct comes into play as part of the purpose because you have to keep sponsors and fans happy. And that doesn't apply in park football. So if you want to just go and play amateur football, not a problem because teleologically, it's just about playing football and those other factors don't come into play. So that was sort of part of my reasoning there with the 12th man and Israel Folau. So just getting back to um, uh, the book, he gives the example here, um, Justice is teleological, uh, meaning we need to find out the talus, the purpose, and justice is honorific. Um, he says, uh, I think Aristotle's example is if you've got uh, flutes and you've got really good flutes and maybe some flutes that aren't so good, uh, this is the musical instrument flute as opposed to the champagne flute. Um, Aristotle says, who should get the best, pl- the best flutes? Uh, he says, the best players of flutes, the best musicians. Um, it's not because they will produce the best music to maximise society's enjoyment. That would be utilitarian. But because the purpose of the best flutes is to be played well. That's the Aristotelian view. So um, uh, sometimes the telus, or the purpose, is not easy to define. And uh, page 204, he gives the example of the game of golf. So there was a guy who um, was wanting to enter the, um, the pro tour as a golfer, but due to a disability, he wasn't able to walk the course. He needed to go around in a buggy. And so he wanted a special exemption to allow him to uh, play professional golf while using a buggy. (coughs) And under the rules as they were at the time, he wasn't allowed to. So the question was, um, uh, to resolve the question, the court had to determine the TELUS or the essential nature of the game of golf. So, um, and the court ruled that uh, this guy had the right to use a golf cart. So they took evidence and they looked at whether physical fitness and stamina and the ability to walk the course was an essential part of golf or really was an essential part of golf the striking of a golf ball with a golf stick. And did that far outweigh any other notions of the athletic requirement of walking the course? And um, incidentally, um, in the case, they cited testimony by a physiology professor who calculated that only about 500 calories were expended in walking 18 holes. So there you go. Um, nutritionally less than a Big Mac, according to that evidence. So, um, uh, so in this case, why would people argue against it? Well, uh, some golfers are a bit sensitive about the status of their game. It involves no running or jumping, and the ball stands still. Um, but they... Um, but the honour and recognition accorded great golfers depends on their sport being seen as a physically demanding athletic competition. So 
Um, so people arguing against it felt uncomfortable because of that reason. So, um, so that was a question about the nature, the talus of golf, ultimately decided to be about hitting a ball rather than walking a course. And why would people object? Well, because they see golf as as the virtue of an of encompassing the virtue of athleticism, of physicality. And by allowing this guy, it was it was describing golf in a way that they didn't like. And you can see the comparison with that and the wheelchair cheerleader. Um, uh, they acknowledged. In both cases, it's acknowledged that the person's doing the job. It's how they're going about it that they object to because the way they're going about it demeans, to some extent, a virtue that others have and that others celebrate and allowing this exception uh, detracts from that virtue. So this is all part of the Aristotelian sort of approach to things. So... um, uh, also, just in terms of what is the purpose of something, uh, what is the telos of a university? Um, and this gets down to sort of um, uh, quotas and things like that. So if you take the view that a university is just to produce technicians, um, people who can write computer programs, for example, uh, people who can... Uh, dissect uh, anatomies and and yeah, yeah. Uh, build calculate uh, load bearing for bridges um, if it's if you if you view a university as purely producing a technician with a technical skill then you would rec- recruit uh, purely on academic performance and you would reject any sort of affirmative action but if you view a university as producing leaders of our society, our parliaments, our businesses, our our community, then you would want a varied cohort and it would be as important as the reading material and that people mix with other ethnicities, other genders, uh, other classes, uh, skin colours, all important for our future leaders. And on that basis, you might argue affirmative action is appropriate in our universities. So uh, so that's why the TELUS uh, is an important concept when deciding what's an appropriate moral response to a quandary. So... Um, in terms of politics, uh, Aristotle um, answers the question, what is the purpose of politics? And for Aristotle, the purpose of politics is not to set up a framework of rights that is neutral in its objectives. It's not merely to guarantee men's rights against one another. Rather, it is to cultivate the virtue of citizens. Uh, the purpose of politics is nothing less than to enable people to develop their distinctive human capacities and virtues, to deliberate about the common good, to acquire practical judgment, to share in self-government, 
and to care for the fate of the community as a whole. So that's a very different approach to our current system of government, which is really leave people alone as much as possible. And, okay, there's an injustice when people start off from the wrong starting point or an uneven starting point. So we've got to let people have an opportunity to at least attend university or get an education. But after that, uh, they're on their own in terms of where they end up. Um, and as much as possible, uh, leave people um, and, and, you know, create a framework of legal rights so you, people can't steal off each other and basically people can be assured of their property rights and and that sort of um, uh, a framework of rights that's neutral in its objectives. And for Aristotle... Um, that wasn't enough. It was about creating a community that that was healthy and a good polis, and where the citizenships citizens are uh, shared in self government and cared for the fate of the community as a whole. So, um, so that was his view to that, and. Um, also here, let me just see, in terms of what is moral, moral education is about learning to discern, well actually, so this is about uh, Aristotle's view on, on what is moral. Moral education is about learning to discern the particular features of situations that call for this rule rather than that one. Moral virtual requires judgment or practical wisdom. Practical wisdom is the ability to identify the highest human good attainable under the circumstances. So um, so he comes down to not providing some magic rule that, um, that you can apply to almost any situation universally. He's saying that depending on the circumstances, you're going to call on different rules at different times. But moral virtue requires judgment or practical wisdom and knowing when to apply rules and when not to and also um, when to just say something is just and something is unjust, when it's right and when it's wrong. And... um, uh, that's the sort of what is moral for Aristotle. He doesn't give a a uh, some fabulous universal rule that you can just apply the Aristotelian rule to it. It's about um, the highest good attainable under the circumstances. Now that doesn't necessarily mean pulling the lever and uh, in a unit, uh, utilitarian sense. Uh, the highest human good would be build a library, not a dogfight stadium. Um, it's it's that sort of notion. Okay, so um, uh, Michael Sandel, obviously he doesn't think that utilitarianism or libertarianism is the answer. He likes this Aristotelian sort of approach. And um, uh, um, what he says here in his book is... Uh, you know, libertarian is, is all the vogue at the moment, liberal freedom. 
And he said it, it developed as an antidote to political theories that consign persons to destinies fixed by caste or class, station or rank, custom, tradition or inherited status. So, um, so our, our, our preoccupation with uh, individual freedom is a, with, without acknowledgement of community responsibility, is a sort of a, a, a response to a period of history when we were locked into um, a straitjacket of roles uh, through caste or class or station or rank. Um, so how can we, um, how is it possible to acknowledge the moral weight of community while still giving scope to human freedom? And um, uh, he quotes Alastair McIntyre, and uh, basically McIntyre says, what am I to do depends on what stories I find myself a part of. Our personal stories impose obligations and loyalties on us. Um, So, for example, you might think that you're a freely operating individual with all the choice in the world but if your um, uh, wife or partner is ill and needs care then you might have to give up a lot of things that you um, thought you could do Um, your personal story could impose an obligation on you uh, and a loyalty might be imposed on you so um uh, it will depend on your circumstances of life as to what community responsibilities are imposed on you uh, that restrict your personal freedom. Um, Alistair McIntyre, of course, wrote After Virtue, and um, I've mentioned it before, but in, in After Virtue... It's the idea, he, he paints this idea of a, or a, he paints a dystopian world where science um, became uh, discredited and all the books were burned and scientists were killed and, and basically a lot of scientific knowledge was lost. And then centuries later, there's a revival and people are trying to... to, to once again, pick up the pieces of science and and make scientific progress. And people have um, they've got the vocabulary of science, but they don't have the actual knowledge of the scientific rules. They're having to learn them all again, and they're using the vocabulary incorrectly and and inappropriately. And they don't know that yet. They're fumbling around with the words, but they don't actually know the scientific theories and he says that our present society has reached that state when it comes to sort of philosophical and moral thought that people have lost the ability to think about uh, think philosophically about morals and what we should be doing as a community or as individuals and 
I think that's right to a certain extent because people um, don't talk about these things very often and I think that's one of the reasons why the podcast is popular is because we do and people can sit down and listen to a bit of this sort of stuff that they don't get anywhere else and I know myself when I go to dinner parties or things like that I will, I'm so used to doing it now, I just do it as a matter of habit, um, introduce these sorts of topics and and people love it. They actually uh, have the best fun talking about these things. So, you know, th- there's a sort of a saying, you know, in in company, don't talk about sex or, or politics or religion. Well, that's exactly the stuff that we should be talking about, but we've taken the view that we shouldn't and we um, should steer clear of these things for fear of offending people. Well, that's not my view. So you can have differences of opinion with people and explore ideas and do that without offending people and if they get offended um unnecessarily well too bad okay so um so just moving onwards to the end of this now i'm getting close to it um so remember i said in the beginning that the aristotelian approach is kind of judgy it's it just makes a judgment call and says you know what we need libraries rather than dogfights stadiums um, and it it sort of feels a bit funny when we're doing a dry, rational, utilitarian or libertarian argument that we commonly do. And um, he makes the point that the religious um, groups or the religious arguers in our society are quite willing to make those judgment calls and they acknowledge a judgment call and we tend to avoid the judgment call and revert back to a dry, clinical, rational, libertarian or utilitarian argument when we should probably adopt a judgment call ourselves. So if you look at the abortion debate, so pro-lifers would say that life begins at conception. And pro-choices, they, they really avoid that question. And they simply would go to argue that a woman has freedom and choice. So, um, so they, they, a lot of that argument is at, is at cross purposes. Neither side is addressing the argument of the other. Um, so, if, for example, pro-lifers are correct that life begins at conception then the choice argument isn't really good enough. So, I mean, we don't allow parents the choice of killing their children once they're born. So if the pro-lifers are correct and that life has started at conception, we shouldn't be allowing parents the choice of killing their fetuses. So, um, so and he's got a point there. Um that it's really, you need to make the judgment call as well and say, no, actually, it's not just about choice of the mother or the, it's also about life just begins, in my view, well, my argument for this, he doesn't say this in the book, but um, I, I take a view that um, the fetus is relying on the mother's body and and, and while that is the case, then the mother um, is in charge of what's happening so 
it's not really about choice so much as the fetus is is needing the consent of the mother to carry the fetus through to a point where the fetus is independent. So I take the view that once a fetus could survive independently of the mother, then at that point uh, the mother has uh, her cons- uh, her, at, at that point uh, the baby should be born and shouldn't be aborted if if it's if it's actually a viable baby at you know twenty eight weeks or, or wherever it might be. So, um, so that's my personal way of getting around that. So, okay. Um, if you look at uh, stem cell debate, so people uh, who are anti-stem cell people would argue that the life has begun. Um, pro-stem cell people avoid that question and they argue the utilitarian benefits of medical research. So again, uh, the progressives are talking past the conservatives. Um, Same-sex marriage. Those against it argue it is immoral. Those in favour of same-sex marriage often dodge the morality question and argue for equal rights and non-discrimination. But the state is not totally neutral regarding marriage, otherwise polygamy would be allowed. So the same-sex marriage proponents should also argue the moral case. And I'll just go to page 256. Looks like I've got something highlighted here. Um, Of course, those who reject same-sex marriage on the grounds that it sanctions sin and dishonours the true meaning of marriage aren't bashful about the fact that they're making a moral or religious claim. But those who defend a right to same-sex marriage often try to rest their claim on neutral grounds and to avoid passing judgment on the moral meaning of marriage. And he says, um, uh, let me just find the right page here, Um, page 16. So when we look closely at the case for same-sex marriage, we find it cannot rest on the ideas of non-discrimination and freedom of choice. In order to decide who should qualify for marriage, we have to think through the purpose of marriage and the virtues it honours. And this carries us into contested moral terrain. So um, same-sex marriages or same-sex relationships are as worthy of respect as heterosexual relationships. And not allowing them affirms the stereotype that same-sex relationships are inherently unstable and inferior and unworthy of respect. So, uh, so I think that's an interesting way of looking at these arguments. And it is true that progressives talk past conservatives because conservatives often make a judgment call and progressives make a freedom or a utilitarian call and and they talk past each other, and progressives should think about more carefully making a moral case for, you know, the decisions that they're arguing. So, um, so uh, justice in the good life, in this chapter he says, the utilitarian approach has two defects. It makes justice and rights a matter of calculation, not principle. And the calculation flattens human goods into a single value and doesn't account for qualitative differences. 
So the libertarian approach overcomes the calculation problem, but not the second. It accepts people's preferences as they are and doesn't require us to question or challenge the preferences or desires we bring to public life. So, um, so for example, when you look at lockdowns and the anti-lockdown brigade, you could argue that their approach to lockdowns is a combination of utilitarianism and libertarianism. Uh, their utilitarian argument, though, I think is a gross miscalculation of the actual weighing up of human flourishing. Um, but uh, those anti-lockdowners, would they've not argued the good virtues that are encouraged by lockdowns and the poor citizenship that would be acceptable and commonplace if we allow unnecessary deaths. And uh, they might say... Uh, who are you to judge? And we should respond by saying, well, we are to judge because we are part of this community. So um, judgments are impossible to avoid. Justice is inescapably judgmental. Justice is not only about the right way to distribute things. It is also about the right way to value things. So thinking back to episode 238, um, uh, we argued that we're pro-social animals. We are cooperating, interconnected beings. We are the honeybees, not the fruit flies. If you remember that argument, if you were describing um, fruit flies to somebody, you would talk about the anatomy of the fruit fly and how fast its wings beat and its life cycle in terms of uh, its breeding and how long a larvae takes to mature, etc., what it eats. Uh, they're solitary creatures, fruit flies. If you're talking about honeybees and you're describing honeybees to people, you wouldn't start at the individual level of a bee. You would talk about the hive, the queen, the workers, the cooperation, the roles of people in it. Um, you know, when describing human beings, we, we are honeybees, not fruit flies. So we're hardwired to perform best in a supportive policy. So a fruit fly doesn't have to care about other fruit flies, but as honeybee humans, we have to care about the colony, the polis. Um, Robert Kennedy, um, great speech, page 262. Since I'm on a roll, how am I going? It's been about an hour on this one. I'll keep going. So... Um, uh, I'll read the speech by Robert Kennedy... Our gross natural I'll start again. Our gross national product now is over eight hundred billion dollars a year. But that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette outfit advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwood and the loss of the natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm and counts nuclear warheads and armoured cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. It counts the television programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry, 
or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America except why we are proud to be Americans. Good speech. So for me, uh, libertarians ignore the reality of our nature. The liberal push for individual freedom was a necessary movement to unshackle us from the chains of aristocracy, caste and class. But libertarians want to unshackle us from community, which makes us less human. They don't see the flip side is that the community is then unshackled from responsibility for the individual. And that is what many selfish power interests want so they can exploit the powerless. So um, so there we go. Um, when you're with your friends, uh, talk about news and politics and sex and religion. Uh, I'm telling you it's your duty as a citizen of our fair country. And... Um, when we are discussing moral quandaries in the future on the podcast and we talk about utilitarian, libertarian or Aristotelian, we talk about honeybees and fruit flies, then you'll know what we're talking about after this episode. So uh, thank you, dear listener. It's been a long one. hope you enjoyed. The panel will be back next week, which I think will probably... Uh, we'll be just short of the six-year mark. Anyway... I hope you enjoy this one and talk to you next week. Bye. Well, the technological revolution that uh, is taking place uh, is uh, threatening us with uh, a unique phenomenon. So far, every time we had technological innovations, uh, they destroyed many jobs, but they created more jobs than they destroyed. This is the Schubertarian process, uh, which uh, overall had net winners, uh, even though there were many losers. Now there is the first uh, juncture since the 18th century when it is highly likely that technological innovation is going to destroy a lot more uh, positions for wage labor than it will create, uh, which uh, I think puts us uh, on a course of a major dilemma. There will be a juncture, and we'll have to choose, and we'll have to choose politically and democratically uh, between a world in which the concentration of ownership over the newfangled means of production is going to lead to a stagnating capitalism with intense inequality and a huge quantity of income for a decreasing, shrinking percentage of the population that leaves behind... Um, barriers, fences, electrified fences in uh, policed, privately policed communities, and the rest uh, in a cesspool of volatility, uncertainty, and social misery. Let me put it in science fiction terms. Um, This is a parable that I think is quite instructive, and I use it often. Um, There's no doubt we are moving towards a science fiction world that will become non-fiction. But, remember, science fiction has... Two possibilities. One is a Star Trek society where we are all equals and we all benefit from the technology. We don't have to work. There's a hole in the wall. 
you go to it, you, you get anything you want from it. Nobody has exp been exploited, nobody has worked for it. The machines do it for you. So the machinery, the technology, is humanity's servant. And then we can sit around and explore the universe, we can have philosophical discussions about the meaning of life, which is wonderful, right? The, in the, the, that is a good scenario. But then there's the matrix too, where the artifacts that we have created enslave us. And then we become caught up in an illusion of freedom rather than the real thing. Whether we go to a Star, Star Trek or to a Matrix-like outcome as a result of technological innovation is the result of politics. And if it's not democratic, it will be a Matrix-like world. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends say hey I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Vis Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.